Oh, I signaled you <laughs> I was like, to go myself. Hello there, do? welcome to Pivotal Film, I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is an episode, it's going to be a good one. This is like a Mario episode almost, we got a Scream movie and a Cohen movie. <laughs> Just like a single Cohen. note the lack of the Yeah, well, the other, there. Ethan retired. Is, so. Did he retire? That's apparently what he did. Hmm. Tom, how's your week been? Long. Long. It's only Tuesday, and I already wish it was over. <laughs> you know, and I was off yesterday uh-huh. uh, because yesterday was you know Martin Luther King Day. Yep. Um, I'm sure Laura Ingram did not like the fact that that was a holiday still. Um, yeah, I forgot that she was a person until I logged onto the Twitter today just to <laughs> well, see what was up. Positive. What is it? Positive. Boosted or you know what? Fuck that shit, though. You know, this is, it's all just for it's all just for views, now. and not even that. It's like we all well, did that. Starting with politics, we all did that stuff when like Trump and his entire staff got COVID. We were all like, good. Everyone on the other side of that was like, fuck that guy, awesome. Like so, I mean, she fucking sucks. So unless you're really into Laura Ingram, then like, you probably fucking hate her anyway. She doesn't yeah, need exactly. to do anything for me to hate her. Yeah. Um, I was just trying to do a, a really quick joke there, not really get into it. Oh, I'm, I'm into it now. Tom, <laughs> as we've been talking about off air, um, we are doing this episode, and uh, in two weeks' time, we'll be doing the best of 2021, and then uh, we'll be a little bit um, of a hiatus. Well, when's Sight and Sound coming out? Sight and Sound should be sometime next month. Oh, okay. in so we it might be a little bit of a hiatus after that. We'll take a few weeks off after until Sight and Sound comes out. Then we have to come on and do some kind of. We have to get together and Look, do some do kind of impromptu Sight and Sound. Whatever. Yeah, but after that, we're going to be for the next few months a bit sporadic. Uh, I might do if it's okay with you a couple episodes yeah. of people. Maybe um, if that's fine. Oh, but, like a guest guest yeah, host guests or whatever. Um, if that's okay with you, maybe, maybe not. Or I might just, I'll probably do a couple solos as well. Um, I've got ticket for next week for, um, After Yang, finally. Oh, I saw, so that, so that was, I, I found it fascinating that Sundance was doing the individual film tickets. Yeah, I was thinking about doing that and like the watch, I might do Watcher as well if they still have tickets available for mm. that. And, um, but like the, After Yang is gone. Like that stuff is sold out. Yeah, I was I saw it yesterday. The one selling the one showing was sold out, but they had like a one forty five showing and I was like, Yes. I'm on it, yeah. That's who smart. knows when that movie's gonna come out. Well it's, it's gotta come out this, Oh the right. souvenir just came out for five hours an hour ago. Um Well I just assumed that was gonna I'm my assumption is that that movie will come out tomorrow. Souvenir Part 2? Yeah. Or Friday? Yeah, I think it's going to probably come out. Because that's what they did with Come On, Come On, where they were just like, it's the only way you could see Come On, Come On. Give us $20. Give us $20. And then, like, the next day, Come I mean, On, Come On still was $20. Everywhere. But... Right, but I don't have to, I don't have, like, a two-hour window yeah. with which to start this A24 but movie. I, I imagine After Yang will not be held off for summer or something in that. I don't know, time. man. They're, I mean, this, and again, we're not going into this movie at all. I didn't love Red Rocket. But like Simon Rex has buzz, had like a shit ton of buzz, and they're just like it, it comes out the it comes out on streaming the day Oscar nominations come out. Yeah, it seems Fuck like you, Simon. It Rex. seems like A twenty four is right now putting all of their eggs in the basket that is uh, the Northman, the Northman, the Northman, the Northman, the no, Northman. But why? Why like, did I forget the name of the movie that was on my anticipation? But they can't list. be putting all their eggs in a basket that they're releasing in April. April's a good month. April's a big month now. You we had some 
Fast and the Furious movies start coming out in April before the pandemic. It's it is actually kind of becoming well, so, the beginning of the ten. You are so I think what we're saying we're both talking about different things though. What I think we're saying collectively is that A twenty four has fucked up all of its Oscar stuff for years now, and they've decided they're just going to make money, and so they can like like get this niche Northman money together. Yeah. And, like, not worry about trying to win awards anymore. Well, that's the thing. It seems like they're really starting to, like, start a hype machine behind X, the Ty West movie, which I didn't which know looks existed. looks interesting. I think it looks fun. Yeah. And it's got, we'll talk about one of its cast members later on mm-hmm. in the first review, who I think is going to be, like, kind of blowing out uh-huh. um, that genre. But we are going to be taking a break for a while, which, for me, uh, we'll segue really quickly into something. We'll be, we'll be good. Because mm-hmm. I don't know about you. We've talked about this. We're... we're Getting a little burnt out on the movie thing, the chasing down all the films. I'm I'm finished with compulsively watching movies. Um, I'm it's I have to be able to. I don't enjoy them anymore. Like even one of the the one we're going to talk about today, I liked it in theory, um, but I was just kind of like, okay, okay. like yeah. you know whatever. But I think yeah, it's just because of the because... way that we're doing it, which is like every every day. Do I watch a movie today? Like and then after I watch a movie, do I start another movie or do I like yeah, and I've been go to, to bed? I've been trying to limit myself to like one movie a day at most, you know. And I think that's a good way of kind of going through it. Um, you know, over the next two weeks, obviously, it'll be about like just that barn burner thing yeah. I do. But after that, we're just gonna take a while. Tom uh, has full time employment and his his also professoring to do. So he will not I have love time work- to watch any movies. I love working two jobs. Um, but for favorite. me. Over this past year, I, I've gotten more into music and also video games has been my big thing. And this year, Tom, did you spend $68.7 billion this, this week? Me? Yeah. I, I'm ashamed to or no, I'm happy to say that I didn't. I well, wish I had the money, but I wouldn't <laughs> have spent it on that. <laughs> well, it turns out Microsoft is uh, becoming the Disney of video games and its purchase of Activision Blizzard. Mm. As it still is only the number three gaming company in the world, even with this purchase, which it blows my mind. Microsoft still, is? Yeah, it's still behind Sony, hmm. and because uh, Sony has a bunch of mobile games, and Tencent, which... Um, What's Tencent? Tencent's the Chinese corporation uh, that kind of does... They're, they're, a mul- they're a major media conglomerate. And I think this is kind of was Microsoft's attempt to stop the sale of Activision to Tencent. Mm. Um, and also getting Call of Duty on its Game Pass subscription sure. service and all that uh, but with that being said i'm just saying i've been getting more into music we talked about music last week and video games and so i do have a list not really a list but just some of the best games that i thought of 2021 because i wanted to keep going in this lead up to our big finale next episode of the best films of 2021 uh-huh. and um i didn't rank these because i don't feel as though uh, i'm necessarily an expert in in video games um, and there's also so many, and I'm just getting into it now. But uh, some of the big games of the year that I didn't necessarily love, mm-hmm. um, I didn't, I didn't dig the new Halo. It's oh yeah, the first person shooter Halo. thing doesn't doesn't work for me. It never has, least. or it doesn't anymore. Um, no, th- this particular kind of by the numbers open world first person shooter. Thing doesn't work for me. I enjoy the multiplayer aspects of first-person shooters, but first-person shooter campaigns uh-huh. don't necessarily work for me. Forgotten City was another big game. It is a story-based mystery game where you go back to it was it was a Skyrim 
kind of mm. redux. Mm. Um, I think I heard about this. It was originally like a mod of it, but you go back to a Roman city to solve basically like why the gods killed everybody. Killed everybody. It's just boring because you're just going around not really doing a lot of puzzle solving, but just talking. Mm. Um, and one game I, I have, I've enjoyed, I haven't finished it yet, but that one, uh, the Game Awards, which is like the Oscars. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, it Takes um, Two. It Takes Two. It's fine. Mm-hmm. It's entertaining. I still don't think it is as good as um, No Way Out, uh, Joseph Fears' last game, and also Brothers, A Tale of Two Sons, mm-hmm. his first game, which was a single-player game, but you controlled two characters with a single controller. Hmm. It's an absolute like masterpiece early on you know early was this like 2012 of, of storytelling mm-hmm. and it takes two is just a little too kitschy mm. for me um but that being said the games i've really loved have been psychonauts 2 mm-hmm. uh which is what is who i don't can't remember who did it but it's a se- long long way sequel of um psychonauts which was released on the original xbox mm-hmm. interesting level design um a lot of personality uh also death's door Mm. Oh yeah, I played Death Store because I don't switch. I haven't gotten very deep into it, but but I just that's started. Just masterful control. I don't know how far into it have you got. Very limited because it's it's just I didn't have time to kind of. But do you enjoy it. like the control scheme and all that? There's a real yeah, nice yeah, yeah. combat rhythm to it, and it's really learnable. You'll die a lot, but when you die, you don't go too far back, and so. Well, so my problem, not my problem with Death Store, is that like my problem with video games is that like this, that stuff. The, the function of the game is less important to me than, like, the immersion into the world of the game. So, like, one of the games that I played, like, a ton last year was Hollow Knight. And, obviously, Hollow Knight's four years old at this point. And everybody's played it. But, like, from a story perspective, like, the aesthetics of the game and the story, um, like, the very, you know, vague, limited story that there is merged perfectly. And then the game functioned in, like, a very uh, just linear, normal way so like i'll i can adapt to functionality the, the skyward so i played the skyward sword re, reboot on the switch 2 which came out for the wii and used like the wii controller for like sword shit but they translated it into this onto the switch with this, like you have to flick the uh the joypad mm. and it sucks but like i adapted and 50 hours later i was able to you know to finish it um but it, I don't. I don't think it's a fifty-hour game. I'm just not like adept at control things. So like, I don't notice good control. I notice really terrible controls. I don't. Tend, I tend to not to notice really good controls. Yeah, that there was actually a game that came out today, so it's not a 2021 release. I've only have two hours into it. It's called Nobody Saves the World, mm-hmm. and it feels like a classic, almost Zelda game. Mm. It feels like a nice mix between Zelda and uh, like Paper Mario. Or mm, I like, like Paper Mario. So I've, I'm really enjoying that so far. It's from the guys that did uh, Guacamelee. I don't know what that is. It's like a Metroidvania. Okay. Um, the other big three uh, inscription, um, it is legitimately just a card game, mm. but it is a card game with kind of this ARG aspect to it. Uh, it often will cut away. It's a horror game, so you're laying out cards. It'll often cut away to uh, this real-world person finding an old copy of the inscription card game. Or inscription, mm. like, it was an inscription card game was a in the story was a famous kind of like just card game like mm-hmm. a Yu-Gi-Oh or Pokemon or oh, something okay. of that ilk but they made a video game version of it and it kind of dwells down into this world of it actually being kind of this like gateway to some sort of twisted hellscape sort of thing 
But it's not really like going deep into the horror aspect of that. It's it's basically the Blair Witch Project meets a card game. <laughs> um, and that's was just it's just an interesting way of doing storytelling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the one game, one game that's on here, it's not much of a game. It's literally just you walking around and doing the easiest type of Guitar Hero things. But from an art standpoint, from a uh, general story standpoint, and especially from a voice acting standpoint, the artful escape. You get mm. uh, Lena Headley, Jason Schwartzman, and huh. um, who's, who's the other big one? Uh, Carl Weathers and Mark Strong are all voice actors in it. And it's just a delight. It's three hours long. A lot of people can find it dull, but if you're really into the tune of just this really colorful, psychedelic art style, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a fun little time. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. really demand a lot, and it kind of builds this kind of exciting kind of energy. The biggest game I've liked this year is <laughs> surprisingly Super Auto Pets, which is a, it's called a, it's a genre of, it's called an auto battler, uh, which basically means you set up your fighters before, uh-huh. and then you just let the battle happen. Huh. Um, but the thing I like most about it is it's literally just a deck building game. Uh, you get like 30 to 40 different cute little animal emojis, and they each have different powers, and they can synergize each other well with each other. Mm-hmm. I've put 60 hours into this game, <laughs> and it started playing in a, three weeks ago. Oh, wow. So that's why I don't really have time for movies right now because I've just been enjoying sitting there, yeah, yeah, yeah. placing a swan, putting you know a a tiger behind him to replicate the power to get more coins so I can buy new animals. But I'm four years into this Mario, and I'm kind of the same way. Where like I'm, you know, I'm not playing that game, but like if I sit down at night, some nights when I should be watching movies, I'm just like, I'm just gonna work on my house in Animal yeah. Crossing. I'm like, fine. Yeah, I'm finding when I'm, I'm bored. I'm gonna go put another like. Go do another mini quest in Hollow Knight. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know. I'm, I'm finding when I am bored with a film, I will be watching it, but then I will pop up Super Auto. Pass, Absolutely. Yeah. Which is uh, also on mobile. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, we will be taking a, a sporadic break. We'll be coming in and out. Uh, you will still get our best of. That's a big kind of huge season finale. It's a, it's, it's a very... It's, Weirdly, it's going very to be an interesting to us. It is it, like it, well, it's always been kind of important to you because um, we love. I mean, it's important to us because lists. We, we are based lists, around a list, sure, but it's also like I don't know. It feels like my definitive. I don't know how you feel about it, and we've talked about it, and like you know, we've talked about it on this podcast. And stuff. It feels like the definitive expression of like my moviness for like the whole year. It's like it's like. Actually, above everything else, it's like the thing I've been like I build towards for like the last I don't know three four years. Maybe after the first year because I didn't really note it, I didn't really know how it felt. And we started in the middle of the year, so we were kind of playing catch up all year anyway. But everything was kind of different back then, so I don't know. Life felt so much looser. Like I didn't feel like I had to try that hard to see like a bunch of movies. For the last three years, I felt like I've been trying, like working my fucking ass off to see as many movies as humanly possible. To your, you have the your point film independent subscription, sure. so you're getting a lot of the screeners. Um, but you made this point. Signed be- up for it. You made this point before, and they. Uh, we'll talk about it later. Um, you want to kind of feel like you've been thorough. And, like, it's, like, a thorough expression of what you feel is the best, not just kind of, like... Like, I think Armand White's best uh, better-than list is often... I don't, I don't get the impression he sees that many movies. 
I get the impression he sees maybe 20 movies a year and like 10 of them are better than the other 10. And, I think, and that's it. And I don't, I don't want to operate like that. I want to see 100 movies and say like, I did my work. These are the, my favorite. These are the ones that move me. These are the ones that I think are better, like doing this better than that. And it, it allows you, I think it's the same thing we do with like literature or even like, I kind of dwell into this when I, you know, I haven't done it with music, but like with video games or whatnot, like when I dwell, like something, I want to dwell into things that yeah. do similar things. Yeah, yeah. Just so my vocabulary and vernacular when explaining the reason why I like a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'll go into this with Macbeth. Like, the reasons why I, you know, can feel close to something or far away from something uh-huh. because I can look at everything else and compare it to one another. Mm-hmm. I mean, I always, I could never say definitively, have a definitive, like, best of list. Like, the only reason we did the music best of list for the first time this year was because I listened to 800 albums this year, this past year. And that was, like, the first time, parts of 800 albums, not 800 full albums. Uh-huh. Um could definitively say, like, I had a gut feeling, like, of, oh, I can actually have some sort of, you know, not authority on this, but actually feel earnest enough yeah. to say this. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's what it is. So, it, like, for me, the, the, like, last two years of doing the best stuff have been exciting, but not as fun. Mm. Um, 2018 was probably... The most fun I had with it, my when I did the Windows Best Picture, because like, oh, that's yeah. when I was like really still excited, and it was a new thing, and I was so yeah. intensely looking forward to doing all of it. Um, eighteen and nineteen for me were the same, like yeah, nineteen still discovery, had it, but... like it was just that feeling of kind of like whoa, like this, holy shit, like and, to High Life, Blaze, Widows, you know. Um, even stuff like First Reformed, like whatever. I mean, I don't want to go into it, but Nightingale. like Nightingale. So yeah, exactly. It's like that you encounter a movie and you're like, "Fuck!" Elephant sitting still. Even Parasite, to like that became like a cultural phenomenon. But when you saw it in theaters, you were just like, "Shit!" Like that is a fucking movie. That didn't happen in 2020 because of 2020. Although it did happen for you with one movie. But that was still early on in the year when movies were. Still be coming out, and right? Yeah, yeah. And everything. Yeah, it was the last movie that each of us. Second to last movie for me. I saw Invisible Man the next day. Right, I saw Invisible Man and then Portrait of Lady on Fire. Yeah. So we crisscrossed, which was him. perfect for me because then I saw Saw was the first movies I saw back in theaters. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I think overall, also coming back, we're come back to it. I don't think we're going to be. I, I would suggest we probably don't review every new movie that comes out. I kind of preferred what we did for a while, especially with Science Sound coming out. I would like to do that again. Mm-hmm. Like, if when we do episodes, if there's a movie, we'll still watch new movies. If there's a movie that strikes us to talk about, either negatively or positively, maybe we'll do it. But I like those kind of, like, deep looks for an hour yeah. into a classic film. And with the new Science Sound list coming out, I would love to also from, you know, a, um interaction standpoint from our audience, yeah, like yeah, those... Yeah. I. I think we want to have a, a thing where it shows that we really care about what we're talking well, about. So we've been kind of doing this the last couple of weeks. We're like, especially like the week we did like five movies. Was that last week? No, this was the week Two before. Weeks ago, yeah. um, where some of those movies, you know, they're just movies. And we're going to get a lot of like, you know, The Matrix and Don't Look Up are just movies. And they're fine yeah. and whatever. They're not fine. But like they're also just content and they're good or bad content and Benedetta is like an interesting movie but you know not that interesting but um, of those this year like Lost Daughter is the only one I really wanted to like talk right. about this yeah. year we're going to get I think we're going to get a lot of 
we're going to get a lot of Matrix Resurrections. And we're going to get a lot of... So everything's going to be very under the radar, I think. Yeah, like there's going to be a lot of underground stuff. And again, I, I, I can't express enough until... Until May, I'm probably not going to go to... <laughs> I'm not going to have a chance to go to the movies a lot. Um, but I'm also not really like... I'm not really all that sad about it because it's just going to be a lot of stuff. And, yeah, I think you know, whatever. movie theater-wise, the only two movies I really want excited for right now in the theaters until through April at this point in my head, depending on if the movies from my list come out, mm-hmm. they're all kind of floating yeah, yeah. around the ether. Well, besides one of them being Northman mm-hmm. um, and X are probably the, literally the only two movies I really am amped to see. Right, and the problem um, with X is that it's probably going to take an eternity for it to be go on streaming, even though it's going to make a middling think, amount of money in theaters. I think theaters. X will release it in theaters, though. I think you'll, I think you'll get a Criterion release at But, uh, but that's, what I'm saying is that like I'm not going to go to oh, the movies no, X. But A24 is ridiculous, and they will not like let us have this movie, even though, yeah, it's going to release in 800 theaters, and it's going to make $1 million. Yeah, and I think... And like, it would make twice that if they just released it like on streaming and people would just be like cool i'll go see this horror movie and i think it's an issue where like we're not going to stop i mean obviously there's going to be this there's going to be a stoppage just because of your general life responsibilities we're not going to stop reviewing new films i i would still have been over the moon to talk like we did for an hour about memoria like that is well yeah but memoria that's is not an experience gun yeah but it's an experience or lost daughter i was still excited to talk about for the 30 some 40 some minutes we talked about it because it's Something that responds to us, and when there's mm-hmm. something, it's something that creates a conversation. Sure. The point of this movie, this this podcast, is when is us over beers, really deep, having a, a right. breadth of knowledge. I think we could say, like even back then, we had a breadth of knowledge of films and being able to speak with some authority in that aspect, in terms of a. Um, I don't want to use the word library sense, but a, a collective sense mm-hmm. in. Bringing in things, right? Well, um, and to that, we would not have ever talked about Matrix except be like that movie was a movie or that movie but, um, sucks. We wouldn't and then even, we would have moved but on. We wouldn't have even like if we weren't doing this podcast, I wouldn't have even bothered to watch the Matrix based on its reviews because I don't I don't care enough about the Matrix. Yeah, I would to have see. watched it on HBO Max because it was on HBO. Max, I, but, I would have yeah. I would have maybe watched it like six months later while I was like eating a sandwich, and I would have watched it like over a couple I'll of days, or I would have gotten to no no because I eat that at night. Um, <laughs> I would have gotten to like you know the Niobe part, and I would have been like, "Nah, I'm 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 fine." This this Jada Pinkett Smith horrible old lady makeup is not worth the and rest I think, of my time. I think that shows that with like before I was committed to finishing films, even when I hated them, and starting earlier on this year with like U.S. versus Billy Holiday um, and Nomadland, which I still got an hour and thirty minutes through. <laughs> I think you. I think well. I think the problem. Yeah, I mean. And it wasn't going to change well, no your Mad mind. Well, Nomadland I fell asleep on. Well, the best part of just... Nomadland is like the end where they finally kind of reveal. Not reveal. I, I finished it. I mean, right, I eventually right. finished it. Not but... reveal. I mean, but it's one of those things where it doesn't matter. We're, it's, we're, yeah, it's <laughs> we in the can past. go off but, on tangents. But it, it's those things that we necessarily don't feel the need to talk about. And so there'll be kind of a shifting again like there was when the pivotal film list ended of, of how this podcast will continue. Right. That being said... This episode is just like all the rest that came before it. However, to be honest, these are, for me at least, two movies I was very much excited for. Sure. Like we said, like I said earlier on the podcast, this is kind of like a Mario episode. Um, in the fact that later on we'll be talking about a Coen Brothers 
Shakespeare film, my second favorite Shakespeare play, mm-hmm. um, I'm doing a hand gesture way out there, <laughs> just presenting like Vanna White. Uh, but this first movie, um, you know, the second it was announced, I was stoked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was not as excited as I was in 2011 for Scream 4, because I remember just pestilently bothering you with that. And I think we had just met the year before, so you were just mm. like, what is wrong with this fucking guy? I, don't even know, I, don't, I think probably at that point I was like, they made a Scream 4? Like, <laughs> why? Uh, but it is the first film in the series, not directed by Wes Craven. The second one, not written by Kevin Williamson. Mm. It is Radio Silence's Scream 5. as it is officially known, takes place back in Woodsboro, the third film in the town of Woodsboro, California, after Scream and Scream 4. Uh, the two legacy characters, Sidney Prescott and Gail Weathers, are long gone. Gail's in New York. Sidney is somewhere in the north, I'm guessing like Seattle. She's now married to Patrick Dempsey's character, we can only assume, from Scream 3. Good job there. Okay. Uh, Mark Kincaid. I say my husband, Mark. Um, McDewey stayed in town, and Ghostface comes back, and we have an opening scene. An opening scene very reminiscent of uh, glamoration between Scream 4 and Scream 1. The difference here, though, is that there is no opening kill. It is just an attack. Oh. Uh, Tara, or sorry, Tara is a Tara Carpenter's attack. And Sam, her older sister who left town long ago, is... Asked to come back because of the attack. She's in, you know, Tara's in bad shape. So Sam and her boyfriend Richie, played by Jack Quaid, uh, who you very much called that when you first said, like, Jack Quaid. That's a big name. Also, by the way, spoiler alerts, go fuck yourself. If you haven't seen it, you had a chance to. Uh, you're oh, like, I was going to ask you if you wanted no, to. No, it doesn't okay. matter. There's going to be spoilers. You said, like, oh, Jack Quaid. Like, that's a kind of a known name. So he's the killer, right? And I was like, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyways. They go to the town together. He's one of two killers. Um, you know, things kind of transgress. Ghostface chases him. There's murders. Dewey, who's David Arquette, has stayed in town, is reluctant to help these new characters, but eventually is drawn out to help is them. Is he a cop still? He has now been forced into retirement because he's crawled into a bottle, as it were, after oh. Gale left him. Um, but he... The reluctant, kind of hardened, one of three legacy characters from this original series of films yep. is dragged into these new characters mm-hmm. to do things. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. He's he's like a fugitive, or like a he's the fugitive, or like a you know, uh, Air Force One president. Is Harrison Ford in this movie? No, but he's basically Han Solo <laughs> from Force Awakens. As I said, this this is like basically oh, he does Scream. Get Han Soloed? 
The Force Awakens. Yeah. Um, he's dragged into it. He tells Gale and Sydney to stay away. There are a couple murders here and there. This is actually the Scream movie with the second lowest body count since mm. the first one. Only six people die in this film. Com- or sorry, eight people die in this film compared to seven from uh, Scream, including the killers. Uh, but eventually Dewey is murdered. Mm. Finally. And that Tough brings blow. Sydney and Gale there. It leads back to Stu's house. Oh. We get that. We go back to where it all started. The killers reveal themselves for the dumbest reason whatsoever. They are stopped. <laughs> I heard about and that reason, yeah. Sydney and Gail pass the torch to the new cast, and we get the sense that their story's done, and now we are going to move on to scream the next generation mario how many murders can this town tolerate hold on a second okay let me get to the review i'm sorry um overall this is a another scream film Uh uh-huh uh that being said for me it is the least successful of the five films including scream three the major reason for that being for me these movies are kind of a whodunit Mm -hmm. and the mystery of it, the build of the horror, I, I, the meta commentary and everything, which is so insane here, but more also insane not, than the Matrix? not as bad as Scream Four. Um, we'll get to it. Okay. Uh, it's it's so insane here, but but most importantly, the thing that I think connects the four Scream films is that in each of the four Scream films, the killer has a motivation that goes beyond movies. In mm-hmm. you know. There's always the movie underlying, except for Scream 3. The movie, our influencer underlying. But in Scream 1 and Scream 3, we get Billy and uh, Roman being abandoned by their mother, whether it be Maureen mm-hmm. or Mrs. Loomis. In Scream 2, we get Mrs. Loomis wanting revenge because of Billy's death. Mm-hmm. And in Scream 4, we get Jill, Emily, Emma Roberts' character, kind of like angry that Sidney Prescott's had like all the notoriety. They're, it's our cousin in the film. Um, so there's reasons for this. In this film, legitimately the reason why they are killers is because Stab 8, the screen fictional movies that are based yeah, upon yeah. these Woodsboro killings, was directed by Ryan Johnston. Mm. Literally, they say, you know, the guy who directed Knives Out directed Stab 8. Is he in it at all? No. Okay. Which is would have been great. It'd be cool if he did a um, cameo. And people were upset about it. Re, that trailer that shows the chrome-faced screen guy with the flamethrower, yeah, that's yeah, just yeah. a shot of from gotcha. Stab 8. And in anger, they wanted to... These two killers, uh, one, a girl who lived in the Stumacher house who became obsessed with the killings and the Stab movies, mm-hmm. and this super fan, Jack Quaid, decided that they, uh, you know... That they need to bring Scream back to stab back to what it was, and that's the entire reason why they're doing this. Mm-hmm. And they target Sam, the main character played by um, Melissa Barrero, because of the fact that it turns out she's Billy Loomis's like secret love daughter from high school, much like you know, uh, Ray was Emperor Palpatine's granddaughter. Yeah, secret, secret granddaughter. Yeah. Um. Also, you know, else is in this movie, Tom. Skeet Ulrich. Oh, yeah? How? As a ghost. 
Oh, man. I mean, an, uh, an amalgamation, a uh, creation of Sam's mind because she's afraid that she'll become a serial killer. Uh-huh. Because Billy was her her dad, so she's afraid she'll become a serial killer. Sam the, the Sam hero? is the lead. Okay. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Yeah, but serial killing usually runs in families. Well, you know, Ray was afraid that she could be evil because Emperor Palpatine. That's true. That's true. That's yeah, this true. is this is legitimately just kind of like. It is supposed to obviously be a satire on the fandom. The killers meet on the horror subreddit. It's mentioned that they met on the horror subreddit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's how they got together. And, and their toxic fandom. They use the word toxic fandom quite a lot. Uh-huh. Yeah, this is, this is what this movie does. Um, it also has an early conversation about horror slasher, which I actually thought was smart. was like slasher horror versus elevated horror. Mm-hmm. Um, and saying, like, one genre exists, don't try to make Scream elevated horror, which I thought was fine. Because, like, when she gets, she gets asked, like, what's your favorite scary movie, Tara, in the beginning, she mentions The Baba Duke and says, like, that she also uh, likes It Follows and, um, you know, everything of those ilk. And I thought that was that was fine. But this overall kind of plot just doesn't work because it doesn't have any sort and it's a screen movie i'm not expecting anything from it but i'm expecting more than just like a meta movie thing Mm -hmm. like from that standpoint it doesn't work what does work for this is everything leading up to it is fine Mm -hmm. it works as just a conventional screen movie it doesn't look as good as scream one through three scream four this weird color blurry set it just Mm. looks a little cheap okay but Wes Craven could definitely frame a Scream movie, frame a slasher movie better than I don't think Radio Silence can. Radio Silence kind of still has this kind of comedy aspect to it. And the comedy kind of is prevalent here. Mm-hmm. Like we get Ghostface being clumsy and the fuck up again. Um, I appreciate the fact that it's not mean in its kills. It actually, I think this cast does a good job of making you, the cast in this is besides a couple of characters, which I'll get into do a good job of like making you care for them and when the kills happen they're they're bloody they're they're vicious but they're not um necessarily have a cruelness to them that bothered me with Halloween kills from comparing this to Halloween kills like this is leagues above like Halloween kills mm-hmm. um and, and speaking of the cast I, I do think that the lead was a little miscast I think she's the only one who doesn't work she's fine mm-hmm. Melissa Barrero, but she just she needs to sell these moments where she's afraid of being a psychopath and she just doesn't land it. And the problem with is like there's these characters, actors around who her, who are doing a much better job. Jenny, uh, Jenna Ortega, who's kind of becoming like the new scream queen now. Um, she's like 19, so she's like used to be like a Disney star, I guess, and now it's kind of blowing oh. up. She was in the Babysitter sequel. She's kind of like stole, stole that film. Oh. Um, like her and Samara Weaving really worked off each other. If they do, a, I'm assuming they're gonna do a Scream Six. And I know Radio Silence really wants Samara Weaving in it. So what I would assume, be the plot of Scream Six? No, they'll fucking do something. Um, they're gonna keep doing. They made these a movies. podcast out of the the killings that were based off the movie. They're gonna keep doing these movies. Like this movie made a good amount of money. It's already outgrossed Scream Four, and cost half as much. Um, she's great in this, and the problem is like you when she's not like you're not seeing her, mm-hmm. and you're watching her sister, you're like, I would rather go back to her. Because mm-hmm. she actually sells, like, being terrified, and then kind of, like, becoming a badass in the end. She actually kills, like, the the last killer oh. in the end. 
Um, and sells like her final line pretty well. She shoots the killer in the head and says, like, I still prefer the Baba Duke. Which is a part of these like scream movies, but it works. Um all the other like supporting cast and like I, I, I do appreciate the fact that the body count's lower. Mm-hmm. So it makes the kills have a little more impact. When the kills happen, you actually care about the people who are dying because they're all selling it. Mm-hmm. Um I'm I'm glad that like Mason Gooding, uh Cuba Gooding Jr.'s son oh. and um what is her name? Uh, Jasmine Savoy Brown survived like there there's a lot of attacks in this, but a lot of people survived their attacks. Mm-hmm. So there's, like, hope and promise for, like, this cast going forward. Yeah. But just from an execution of its final act and, and also from a pacing standpoint, literally Dewey dies, which is, like, kind of your climax of Act 2. And there mm-hmm. should be, like, a slow transition to your Act 3. And instead, this film is just like, no, immediate final act. Mm-hmm. Um, it, just, it just is a mess because there's too many instances of homages. There's too many instances of callbacks to, to the original screams or talking about Star Wars um, Mikey Mads, uh, Madison plays one of the killers who was uh, in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, she is the one that Leonardo DiCaprio catches on fire in that. Oh. In this film, she gets caught on fire and runs around screaming. So just like... It does a callback to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, so yeah, it is... It's bothersome because there's, there's, there's a lot of t- talent behind this and there's, there's potential, but it just feels like this needed... A couple once overs and a couple of it feels like it I, I think these scream movies need Williamson because I think the best scream films one two and four were all written by Williamson so he has like this kind of sense of like what these movies need in terms of bringing it back to its core toning down the hokiness and kind of the meta-ness like scream four is very meta or very kind of meta commentary but he tones it down to kind of like bringing it about like oh these people are killers because legitimately they have issues with something or something. I mean, I think the problem with that whole concept is that um, this movie probably made enough money that they would be willing to make another movie that costs about as much money to hopefully make even not as much money as this movie's going to make, which means that they're not interested in like bringing Kevin Williamson back to get back to the core of anything. No. They're just going to move on and just do whatever well, Kevin they Williamson, want. Kevin Williamson was an executive producer on this one, so... Oh sure, I mean, but that's but all that stuff was probably tied to like old contracts where he was just like in the first, you know, in the second one or something. He was probably just like, or after the first one, he was like, "If you make any more of these, like, I, I get around. whatever." Yeah, and they're just like, "Fine, it's yeah. the '90s. We don't fucking care." And then they made four more, and so he's just like, he probably won't even he doesn't even care about writing it because he's making money off of this. We're not even really doing anything. Well, he was on set a lot with this one, apparently. Who knows? Apparently not reading the script. No, I don't, I don't think he necessarily cared. And I don't, uh, yeah, I think there was a lot of hope and potential there. There was still a lot of, early on in this film, I'd say during its first like act and a half, there is a lot of scream in it and like the original scream and like leading up to it. Like I was actually going like, okay, this is potentially like my third favorite. It wasn't nearly as good as one or two. Mm-hmm. Um and it just kind of falls off a cliff. It, it just needed something more. Mm-hmm. I did, however, appreciate the fact that uh, I've talked about this podcast, not podcast, but this YouTube channel in the past, Dead Meat, kind of yeah, like yeah. the big horror podcast. It's in it. Oh. Like the, it's not Dead Meat, but the two people who post that are mm-hmm. actually have like a role as a YouTube channel yeah. doing something else. They're like film fails talking about Stab 8. So I found that funny. I was yeah. the only person that laughed at that in theater. And I was like, oh, right. Because you're the only person that knows what it is. 
Um, yeah, I don't know how I feel about this new like stage of movie. Like, then everyone complains about the Marvel movies all the time that they're like all interrelated and they have to do all this stuff instead of all their other movies and blah blah blah. But they're not like, I don't know. They're not refer. They haven't started referencing themselves yet. I mean, the Hawkeye, the Rogers, the musical thing in Hawkeye is like the first time they they did that. But that also makes sense in relation to like. What just ha- what happened to the world yeah. and like you know the mythology of yeah I didn't of have Steve the, I didn't have Rogers an issue with stuff. that at all but like I just the question that I asked you like in the beginning of this review like how many more realistically how many more people can die in this town before oh, yeah. they're just kind of like I you know what only... we should like maybe we should whatever the whatever the word is for not being a town anymore and we should all move to other towns maybe that happens at some point yeah, I don't think any. Also, how many, like, huge movie geek teenagers are there? And when do parents say, like, no, you can't watch any movies? Because the only people who ever die in these movies are, like, part of the movie geeks. But, you know, like, also, the logic of it doesn't necessarily matter. What does matter is just this is too fan servicey. Yeah. It does, like, I, even though I liked the dead meat thing and laughed about it, I was like, this is just done because for the sake of people like me, or the horror geeks are like, oh, that's cool, and we'll then give it a positive review. Or these references to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, but that's or like, to mention the Babadook and It Follows. This, that's just done to... The Once Upon a Time in Hollywood thing, the, the Babadook and It Follows, I guess, makes sense in a, in a conversation that I feel like has been had and is dead. And we've... The culture, the, horror the culture has moved completely moved on from... And I have to imagine, and I'm not part of the horror culture, but I, I suppose that the horror culture like has absorbed all like the high... Horror, low horror thing, and is kind of fine with wherever it currently exists. Um, I don't know. It feels like it's re like it feels like it's rehashing stuff, and I kind of didn't see it, but just from like like the themes that you're going on, it seems like it's reha- like it's opening up, um, reopening arguments that were closed. It's like referencing things that like people have kind of like forgotten about. Like I mean, I love that part in like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Uh, it's like one of my favorite parts of the movie. But it's not like a thing that means anything. It's just funny in the context in which I, it's, it exists. And I think this that this scene that scene exists to be funny. I don't think it exists as like a fun reference. I think it exists to be funny, but surrounded by everything else that it's doing to be self-referential to all the other screams. You know, having a moment where they mention that Hayden Pantiera's Kirby Reed survived because that was a big point of contention for Scream fans, where she died in Scream Four. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a thing that shows that she lived. And they mention, like, a character from Scream 3, and they repeatedly mention things from Scream 2. Like, doing these self-referential things to do fan service aspects, and then mentioning other horror films, mentioning the Star Wars thing, being yeah. kind of following a plot line of Force Awakens. When they did this kind of, like, offhanded reference to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, that could have just been fun. Mm-hmm. And it felt like it was just meant to be funny, mm-hmm. but, like, not... But kitschy and not necessarily, like, another reference. It then felt too much. So, right. like... Those things that other films might do has kitschy jokes ended up feeling like it's just like, God, another thing. Well, if these people had any fucking balls, they would give the sequel to this movie to Ryan Johnson. They'd be like, what do you want to do? This would be really funny, wouldn't it? Yeah, then Ryan Johnson's like, well, first off, I would like $30 million for me to yeah. do this. And Daniel Craig is going to be in it. Oh so, my God, they would fucking come themselves. This would be Knives Out 3 is actually just Scream 6. That would be a first, right? That'd actually be two sequels crossing over to become like one movie. I mean, it almost happened. Uh, right. With uh, Twenty Three Jump Street was supposed to be a Men in Black crossover. Jesus fucking Christ! Which I was, I think, 
something like that eventually could work. Uh, but no, it would not be the case. Uh, Puppet Master versus Demonic Toys happened. Oh yeah, and I guess all those Alien Predator movies. Yeah. So horror, yeah. it would it be a, it would be the first that I know of of a. I mean, I'm sure it's happened probably in comedy. But it would just be interesting to have like the you know um, have those characters from Knives Out involved, investigating wait. like a scream. Scenario. I think you would have to wait two movies. You'd have Scream no three movies. You have to have Scream six, Scream seven. Just pump those out, and then Scream eight could be right. But this Johnson. is but this is where we are now, right? And like this is where we are in these movies. Is that like we, this is this is all that matters and Ty West is going to make this movie for A24 and it's going to make a little bit of money and then they're going to say like hey Ty West do you want this and it'll be like how it's got how much money attached to it sure it's the same it's what happened with Adam Wingard right like you know Adam Wingard made Guest and um, You're Next Mm -hmm. and then he got thrown a shit ton of money to do um, Death Note for Netflix and then and Godzilla then he went over in the Godzilla I mean um, it's a good Godzilla whatever but like who cares It's also been t- completely forgotten and just part of like the fucking yeah, HBO machine. Year. Yeah, um, yeah, and I, I don't know. I just I didn't dislike the fact that I saw it, but I just ended up leaving it going like, okay, next the next screen movie that comes out, I'll see mm-hmm. in theaters opening weekend. Sure, but I won't be has. Stoked for it as I was for no, Scream it, Two, Scream Three, Scream. It's just 4. like the next Pearl Jam. I mean, record. I wasn't as excited for Scream Five because it was a new mm-hmm. director, but like I definitely was excited for it. Yeah, but because of the dwindling returns of this film, I won't be as. Well, excited. I mean, it's, it's the same thing when you're a fan of something and it just kind of starts to you start to question like the motives of the people that are making the thing that you're a fan of, um, and like what they're doing, and everything seems like just like a, a degree less sincere. And like so, you're you don't have to give as much to it, which allows you to see cracks and, and and flaws that you may not have seen, like when you first became a fan of a thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which takes like a little bit of your joy away, a little bit of your passion away, and you're still devoted to the idea of being devoted to that thing, but you're just not like I don't know. You're just not wrapped you're not wrapped up in it anymore. You know what I mean? You're exactly. able to kind of just be like, you go here, and yeah. I'm gonna go over here and. We exist in the same universe, but like we don't have to talk to each other. Ten, ten on a positive note, though, I will say, once again, from a cast standpoint, like the lead is fine, but I, I, I almost think she, she struggles in the sense that like everybody else is so charismatic that yeah. like I think you could take any of these actors and throw them in any sort of popcorn bubblegum project you need, and they're gonna nail it. So, so what like, happened to West Side Story? I will say, yeah. whoever I don't have the casting director of this, whoever casted this, did a fucking fantastic yeah. job because like just their like charisma mm-hmm. and natural personality and being able to just be there yeah like made it so sure ten on a kudos like that and also jenny ortega needs to be like the is top. she the one that's in x yeah she's an x uh she is in um oh god what is it called stage 666 or whatever the foo fighters horror comedy that's coming oh out. yeah 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 um and she's that. also Playing Wednesday Adams in Tim Burton's directed oh, um, Netflix show. Why don't you go get that? But she's really good in this, so like, get that fucking bag. But she's in a Tim Burton movie, and Tim Burton is garbage now. Yeah, but she's probably making a lot. Of I accidentally watched some of Big Fish. 
<laughs> the other day. How does one accidentally watch Big Fish? Because Netflix, when you are on Netflix and you just scroll over like the oh, frame right. of a it movie, it just it. starts playing YouTube a movie. YouTube does that too. And I, I just kind of left it, and I was like, oh yeah, Big Fish, and I was like, oh, oh my. And I remember, I had, a, I remembered viscerally watching it in theaters and just being like my heart just exploding because I like Tim Burton was like gonna make this movie and it was gonna be this big it was gonna be it was gonna be something really special and it ended up just being the most normal piece of fucking like pretentious shit that I've ever seen and every movie he's made after that has sucked fucking ass I I still like Sweeney Todd oh Ugh, come on, why? I just, I find it entertaining. I like Sweeney Todd the Musical. Well, I like Sweeney Todd the Musical, but I just... I like the songs. It's enough with the I Sweeney think Todd. I like Alan Rickman a lot in it. I like the two young lovers in it. Mm-hmm. And I like the stylistic kind of gore in it. Blood in it. Yeah, it's still... Also, really quickly, whoever's calling this the goriest screen movie, learn the difference between gore and blood. Mm. Definitely the bloodiest. There is not one moment of, of gore. gore. Yeah. Scream 1, Scream 4 both had intestines. Scream 1 had multiple scenes of intestines. Mm-hmm. This has no innards. Bloody. Bloodiest. Learn the fucking difference, you fucking idiots. No, they'll never How are that. you film reviewers? They'll never I'm going to get into this in the next movie. <gasps> yeah. Okay. Because what is going on? Speaking of the next movie. What? Uh, it's... Uh... I don't know. We don't need to do like it's a lead the Joel Cohen written <laughs> and directed the tragedy of Macbeth. Big rip. By the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. My husband. King that shall be. We should fail. We fail. Didst thou not hear noise? Methought I heard a voice cry, sleep no more. Are you a man? Aye, and a bold one. That dare look upon that which might appall the devil. I have no words. My voice is in my sword. This movie is Macbeth by Bill Shakespeare, uh, adapted by Joel Cohen. Although, um, I've read Macbeth a bunch of times. Um, he leaves in most, most he does, of he stuff. does some, he does some sig- interesting, significant changes that we'll talk about. We can talk about. And, um, but I mean, as a whole, it's Macbeth. I mean, do we really need to go into like the plot of Macbeth and like you no, know, no, kind well, of the machinations and things like that? Um, yeah, a couple of things, I guess. It's in black and white. We got Denzel Washington as Macbeth. We got Francis McDormand as Lady Macbeth. Francis McDormanding all over the fucking place. 
Um, this time it works for me. Oh, I think it's... I hate it, but okay. we'll talk about it. Um, you know, he they've kind of filled... It's, this movie is interesting in the sense that, like, it's kind of... It's establishing people as Cohen brothers or Cohen uh, um, actors, like Harry Melling as Malcolm. Now, this is a second Cohen film. Like, he's clearly on their list of people that are going to be in things, like when they make movies. Stephen Root. Going forward. Stephen Root, isn't it? Oh, my God. So, I I will say this. I hate the Porter scene. Mm-hmm. Like, the Porter scene. I, obviously, Shakespeare, in all of his comedies, does Lear have that? Does Lear have the scene of comedy? Lear's the one I don't really remember. It probably does. It's it does, just but not it's ever so played as but such, like, yeah. The Porter sequence happens in such a bad place of that that play, yeah, that it stands out like a sore thumb. And I was like, ah, oh, he's he's gonna skip it. Mm-hmm. But then, like when I see Stephen Root and Stephen Root doing his thing, I'm like, this is the first time I've ever seen this scene done where I enjoy it. Well, it's very it's you keep waiting for this stuff to happen. Yeah, you keep waiting for this those moments to happen in this movie. And there's a couple of moments where you think that they've happened, like those Cohen brothers that like the the humor. That kind of comes in, um, like early in the movie. There's a scene where you know they're telling. Um, I forget who is telling. Uh, uh, Duncan, da- telling Duncan about like you know Macbeth's exploits and like Malcolm like exclaims something and it's like everyone just kind of like doesn't say anything after. There's like a beat and I'm just like oh like that's supposed to be funny like that's pretty humorous I guess that he's just, like, so excited and everyone else is very just like hmm. Well, the thing I like too. Um... There, there's, there's uh, just, just go on. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, you know, um, you're probably more, more well versed in, in the Macbeth um, thing than I am, so I'll just go to review stuff. Um, um I thought it was fine. Um, I want to talk about the choices. I want to talk about the set design and the production design. I want to talk about the score. I want to talk about the cinematography. I want to talk about that Francis McDormand thing. Um, you know, uh, what's this? There's a couple of people in this movie that I think like do really, really interesting work. Um, Brendan Gleeson, I thought, is doesn't have a lot to do, but I think he's really excellent at it. Corey Hawkins, who we last saw in The Heights, is great in this. Um, I mean, there's a special place in movie heaven for Catherine Hunter as the witches. Um, and as an old man, I read a review that like didn't want to spoil who the old man was, and I was like, "It's the old, it's an old man. Like it's okay that she's playing both the witches and an old man." Um, and then I guess the elephant in the room is is Denzel Washington in this, and I thought he was fucking amazing. Um, I thought he was better than I've seen him be in a very, 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 very long time. And he even, he found ways to put like Denzel things in there, but make them relevant to the character and the emotion and the moment. And it was just a really like thrilling performance so much so that like when he wasn't on screen, I was very uninvested on like what, in what was happening. Um, so, the, but again, it was it was it was fine. I mean, I think it's one of these things where, like, in, I may un, I may understand it better as we talk about it. I'm not 100 percent sure I get why Joel Cohen did any of the things that he did. Um, that might not matter. Um, maybe it does. I don't know. I don't know. I'm I'm kind of like on the. I, I don't. I definitely don't dislike it. 
But I definitely don't have like a ton of feelings about it. This has usurped uh, Roman Clancy's Macbeth is my favorite variation huh. of it. Um, yeah, no, I I paused this film multiple times just to look at it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the narrative choices that are done in this, I think, have always been things I've wanted to see happen. Mm-hmm. Um, like what? The choice of Ross being clearly shown as the third murderer mm-hmm. of Banquo is something I always wanted to see. The twisting of that. Also, Ross becoming such a more significant character is something I always wanted to see. Like I pulling always, the strings behind pulling the scenes. Pulling the strings, yeah. I always loved. Um, and and, and there's, there's things narratively that work so incredibly well for me. Having Catherine Hunter play both the witches mm-hmm. and play the old man um, in Act 2, Scene 4. Yeah. You know, that, that scene where Ross meets her mm-hmm. on the, the drier, uh, drier kind of Tarkovsky-esque crossroads. Sure. Um, Gives you this sense that, like, you know, you have the witches kind of constantly pulling the strings, but also Ross is playing all sides. The choice of having it be Ross that presents the head of Macbeth instead of Macduff mm-hmm. that presents the head. It is a Ross undercurrent. Ross has always been my second favorite character in this play. Mm-hmm. My favorite character is Young Seward, and that is absolutely the way I've always wanted to see that scene done. Mm-hmm. Um, when they did a high school production of Macbeth, uh, I auditioned for it. Have I talked about this? I did talk about this during the, um, mm-hmm. the Macbeth thing. I, so. I, I auditioned for it, wanted Young Seward, got Duncan, and backed out because I really wanted Young Seward because that's my favorite scene in all of Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. And that's just done perfectly. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the choices by which to truncate things work. Um, once again, going back to Act 2, Scene 4, the fact that the old man takes some of Ross's lines... Mm. Is interesting that it kind of like feels as though this weird way that the three witches and the old man are coalescing as one character. We get the sense that the three witches are kind of this manifestation more so than they are in the play of this undercurrent of natural, either evil force or just natural force that kind of exists, a supernaturalness. Well, it's, um, a, it's a it's a disorder in a film or in a play or in a not even a play. I don't know. Macbeth is like above play. Yeah. Um, that is very much obsessed with order. Yeah. No, I don't even mean... It's like beyond... Like well, that's why just, I say fable in the sense of... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of mythology. Sure, the yeah, mythology. Yeah. It's um. So, yeah. It, it, in, in Catherine Hunter's hands, the, the witches become ve- something very much um, uh, opposed to everything else that, like, is happening in Scotland at that moment. And... Exactly. Um, and the make... The, the machination of, of this being kind of like the witches in the Ross... And then Ross pulling the strings of everything, finishing it with um, Ross collecting Fleance. Mm-hmm. You know, that being your final scene mm-hmm. is just brilliance. Like, I. And, and well, especially because. Alex of, yeah. Hassel fucking He's nails great. this yeah. to me, for me. Um, I, I love everything in him that he does in this. Uh, originally, in. Oh my God, what is that? Act uh, four, scene three. Um, which is done incredibly well here where Ross, you know, you've seen kind of Ross know that the murders of um, McDuff's wife is yeah. coming. He's kind of like playing both sides. And then when he presents, he's in Act, scene, act 4, Scene 3, mm-hmm. when he tells McDuff about it, in the play, it's often presented in a way where Ross is doing it because he's afraid mm-hmm. of McDuff's reaction. But in here, he's just like kind of fucking with Macduff, like he kind of like says, like 
No, oh, how, a... how are they? You know, when I left them, they were at peace. Mm-hmm. But the way he says it, like they are fine. But there's, be- the there's beats. Yeah, there's yeah. there's there's like, there's, there's yeah. definite editing beats. And from an editing standpoint, I think this is pitch perfect. Mm-hmm. Um, in the sense that it does feel like Ross is pulling all the strings, and that's what I love because I've always wanted to see a presentation of this play done that way, mm-hmm. where Ross is well, in control. And uh, to to broaden it out, I guess a little bit, I, I was interested to see a presentation of this play that wasn't so black and white. You know what I mean? Where it's just like these two people are conspiring against everything else, and like they're pulling all these strings. You know, the Macbeths are responsible for everything and everyone's just doing whatever they're told and you know uh but it's 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 never been i guess i haven't seen it in movies done with uh i don't know the narrative depth that this movie this this movie does like just on a on a whole and and from and from its its thematic or, or or casting choices works interestingly enough because we get a aged couple oh, who yeah. are never going to have children so the lines where you know he, early on where Macbeth is talking about you know oh you could have just produced males rings as though like you could have but you produced no children mm-hmm. and it makes his wanted murder of Banquo seem so utterly contemptive you know um, because it doesn't make any sense because he's not going to have children at that point mm-hmm. You know, it's it, at that point. It's just it is that increasing madness. And and what's interesting too, I think, is is in the Banquo's ghost sequence, presenting it kind of like as though Macbeth is suffering from a, a form of almost dementia instead Great. of guilt. Yeah. You know. Um, but it, it's it 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 could be. It doesn't have to be dementia because it happens in the context of the movie. Oh, absolutely. Um, but 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 it, but it adds these extra layers. Well, I was in I because I love that scene too. Because it seemed very special that they cut to him, like, kind of struggling with that bird. Um, that seemed very significant that, like, we're all seeing him doing something. And it's it's in reality this, when he, like, perceives it as something else. Um, it shows, like, this this dichotomy in perception that I think, like... Like the the Polanski version of Macbeth is very just content to be like, it's a ghost, yeah, and like absolutely. he's yelling at a ghost, and this is like what's happening in this moment, and this is the context in which, narratively, that the, this matters and why we have to have it, and like whatever. I think Francis McDormand's one good line reading is um, at the end of that scene when she tells that guy to go, and it's um, it's like with this real like this force like you're wrong like get the fuck out of here mm. instead of just kind of like being there's no the graciousness is gone she's not trying to hide anything she's just like fuck you which is oh what, uh, which is new and which new, is and new, new yeah. also also new <laughs> one of the things i loved is when the um one boy comes with i think talking originally about mcduff's and malcolm's army coming and he says, out with it, Wayface. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Saying, like, having a black Macbeth Ooh. tell this white kid, out with it, Wayface. That whole fucking is scene so is killer, man. And it's just like a regular, it's just like, a, in, in any other context, it's played as, like, the beginning of something. It's the beginning of, like, uh, it's the beginning of a scene. It's the beginning of uh, a narrative beat. It's the beginning of something, like, relative to the story. But in this movie, the way that Denzel Washington plays it, it's... 
it's in context of like a psychological all those words are in context of a psychological degradation not just like words that Shakespeare wrote which that he's is, delivering in this in this tone which is great cuz cuz what I find interesting about this is and is I feel as though this has a better arc to Macbeth than I've seen done before on mm-hmm. film or I've seen in the productions I've seen in Macbeth in the sense that like early on Macbeth is shown with like this degree of cowardice like See, he is I, you don't get that feeling it's not the cowardice it's resignation. Yeah, resignation. Okay, a mixture of resignation. Okay, we're, we're reading the same thing. Though. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm, I'm reading a bit of like con- like kneeling to his wife. He's fine. For sure, but he's, like it, for me, when he so when he gets he's happy, first, he's kind of happy where he is. But he, like, yeah, when a he, little resigned to the fact that he'll never get anywhere. Right. When he first then encounters when the witches, he's just kind of like, what? Like, I don't really? So. And then when he gets like kind of like issued, um, you know, Thane of Cardor, and he's he just sort of like, maybe. Really? And then, like, when his wife talks to him, he's like, I don't know. And she's like, no, yeah. And he's like, okay. And then you get, like, what's great, too, is just how brutally cruel the murder of Duncan is. Like, he takes. You can see that knife coming into the throat. Yeah. It's a a sense of him taking glee in it. Um, Well, see, and. Which, but it's also great. It's Mm -hmm. also greatly contrasted with, like, the the sequence of the execution of Thana Cawdor. Another thing I love about this is Malcolm, who I always fucking hate, is presented as a fucking pussy. Well, he's and, a giant fucking pussy. And see, this. I don't. And I don't. Malcolm even, sucks. And Malcolm even, is every time I've ever seen. Sorry, not to cut you off. No, 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 really, no, no. Continue. I'm yeah, very, yeah. I have really. You yeah, know, yeah, yeah. I have really deep feelings about this. I fucking hate Malcolm, and I hate the fact like, and obviously Shakespeare is kind of tied by the hands to like present a king in this sort of way. But like the entire thing of Malcolm being like, well, it's I'll part of the tragedy. Pain, blah, yeah. blah, blah. But, like, I hate that. But, but, like, instead of just going, like, fuck that, like, Malcolm's kind of, like, doesn't deserve this. Well, my problem with the Malcolm thing here is that there's a lot of moments where Malcolm's in too many scenes where good people are doing too much without actually doing anything. So Brendan Gleeson is literally just standing there. In almost every one of Brendan Gleeson's scenes, he's just standing with his arms under a robe and he's just standing. But he's doing stuff. And often behind him, Malcolm is there literally doing nothing. And it's, I guess, narratively relevant to what you're saying that Malcolm stinks. And like, yes, we have to have a king. So like Malcolm will become the king. It's part of the tragedy is that like the order is upset and then order is restored. It's the same thing that happens in Hamlet. Um, But in the movie, it's just this big empty hole. Like Harry Melling, I think, is a good actor. There, When Malcolm is on the screen in this movie, it's like a big empty hole that's like looks like a person. And I'm just like, I would love him to be doing something. But see, because I, he's just standing there doing nothing. I think it works because he's always shown to be... He's always... I think it works intellectually. With, he's conflated... No, but I think he's conflated with good men. There, the scene Is he? he? No, in the sense of the scene where he mentions to Duncan about the death of Thane and Cawdor and he starts like shitting on him. Yeah. And the way Brendan Gleeson does the line reading of like, shut your fucking mouth. He was a good man who maybe you know, yeah. fell to the side and just... Beats him down. Mm-hmm. And then later on, when like he tries to like use this manipulation um, of Macduff finding out about his like like let it be in your sword. Right. And you kind of get this feeling from just like Corey Hawkins' face, like, shut the fuck up. Right. Like, and that's the thing. I think it works because I think he is a nothing. He's he's a white faced, pale faced nothing. Right. And this is who is ultimately gonna be usurped by the way this presents it is like Fleance 
or the lineage of Banquo is is, is a take, noble. Uh, right. no, sorry, Jesus, didn't mean to explode that. Is a noble good man. Uh huh. Ross maybe will play like that hand of the king eh, to quote. Ross fucking, will be dead at some point. Yeah, to quote whatever. But like, but Ross, Ross is like playing all these weird angles or whatnot. Like, uh, but like. Real order and real nobility is coming. Malcolm is just this kind of pale face nothing right. that and has to happen. And this is where – that's kind of, I, I guess, my – I think it works intellectually better than I think it works on screen. Because on screen, it's just this kind of like wide-eyed, stock-still guy just kind of like eating up space. I and think this is made for like nerds. <laughs> like nerds into, like, into the play. I guess so. Maybe. Because there's so many choices that are – like the entire like – Using Craig's like uh, what the Edgar, Edgar Gordon Craig's is that his name? Um, yeah, Ed, Edward Gordon Craig from the turn of the century, like taking his set design. He was a famous turn of the century um, set designer. He was originally an architect, but he has like these really brutalistic, minimalistic, hard lines. Like yeah. using all of that, so using big year for brutalist architecture and design with this and Dune, <laughs> but using those these these choices kind of and, and the way in which. There's these small changes like, you know, the old man taking Ross's lines has thematic purpose, showing Ross as the third murder, which has always been a thing. You know, the, I think these small, unique choices are kind of meant for people who care about that play. Because I remember when that scene happened, I looked like when the Ross old man thing, I'm like, I was like, this, something's wrong with this. And so I had to like look up the scene and we're like, oh, right. Because like the line reading. Well, see, I, and that's, and yeah, it's good. And, but I also think that works in um, a film uh, capacity as well, because it seems like in the, in the context of the film that the witches know, and because if you have watched the movie, you can very clearly tell that like Catherine Hunter is playing that old man because they sound remarkably similar and they look remarkably, the face shape like they, is the same and whatever. The, it the, seems, the makeup is not great. Right. It's but seems, purposely not purposely, good. Purposely, yeah. yeah. It seems like the witches know more. Nature is more involved than like... And that, this, is, this is all directing me toward... Nature is more involved than I think the uh, most interpretations of the play, like te- except for like throat of blood tend to uh illustrate which is to say that with the witches the umbrella of the witches not just prophesizing but kind of like dictating tone a little bit like having the authority when uh during the entire you know double trouble sequence which is looks brilliant and having those two play off of each other like oh. having a, a very goaded Sort of Denzel playing off of Catherine Hunter, and like every time he tries to speak, they're like, they're just literally like, yeah, shut don't the speak. Fuck yeah. Up. Um, with so with them, with Ross moving moving things around behind the scenes. I love the idea that like Ross is, gets to move about the countryside. You know what I mean? He's like the one character besides like Banquo. Everyone's kind of trying to come to the castle at one point, and this movie illustrates really well that like Ross is the only one except the the two murderers that is like moving away from the castle and then like you know Mc, there's like the Macduff stuff he's somehow everywhere all he's the time like, wherever somehow, he needs yeah. to be you know um, in like a, in, a, in short order but like Ross is always around when I say that I don't think that the the um, the Francis McDormand performance works um, I don't think it works but I also so think that like Lady Macbeth in this seems to have been marginalized to like a kind of minor manipulative figure as opposed to, like, 
the chief architect that we're we're that we're like that we know her as. You know what I mean? Like in film and in the play, um, Lady Macbeth is like is 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 conspiring. Is is the like I said the chief architect of this whole thing. And in this, she just seems like a meddler. And her even the choices that she the things that she does, and that Joel Cohen has her do don't seem like they work. It doesn't seem like it works at all. You know what I mean? It yeah. seems like the it seems like Macbeth is making his like she's kind of goaded him into into killing Duncan. But the way that Denzel plays it, it seems like he is like compelled to do, to do it like for other reasons when. She poisons his drink when she gives him that little. I don't know if it's poison. Like, it's like sleeping to sleep. aid. Yeah, that kind I of like that kind of backfires something. because, like, then that whole that just fucking spectacular like spoiler alert that's going on my moments of the year list is the you know the something wicked this way comes scene is is like a film annihilating scene and I think that's part of my problem with this movie is that you have these some scenes that are just like. Like in a fucking atomic bomb in like the in the canon of Shakespeare films, like that scene is one of them. Like no one ever thought of it. No one's gonna, and no one can Just do anything feet, like it ever halfway again. Foot and halfway deep in water. Well, the idea that the cauldron is the room, yeah. you know what I mean, and that they're over it, and like no one can move like Catherine Hunter, and no one can like. Is she like a contortionist? Or yeah, yeah, is that's she, okay. a part of her deal. Okay, I didn't know if she was. All, it's like she has to be, right? Well, there's a great. So she's um, she plays Puck, and uh, I I love Catherine Hunter. Um, oh, I imagine she'd be a great Puck. <laughs> she's a good Puck in Julie Taymor's filmed version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Okay. she's a she's a good Puck. And my only problem with her Puck is that it's it lacks like an emotional depth to it. It's just kind of like I mean, puck, puck. Puck always never. I never felt Puck had much emotional depth. But, but I also my problem with the, like, the fact thing. that like he's doing, like Puck is doing lots of stuff and they do lots of cool stuff with Puck, but it doesn't ever seem to be for a reason other than the fact that like it's Puck. This all, this stuff all seems to be for a reason. You know I mean? When she's contorting her in that first scene that we see her when she's like, her shoulder seems dislocated and it's like the, um, the ombre of her arm, like the coloring on her arms, like seems to mean something because her shoulders are all out of joint yeah. and she's doing all that fucking crazy shit. Like all that stuff carries, it seems to carry narrative weight in this movie. And I guess, I guess what I'm trying to say is that like, I don't, I'm not the Francis McDormand thing as lady, lady Macbeth is, she doesn't really seem like she's, coherent in this movie she seems like out of she's not out of control because out of control would like suggest like a danger she doesn't seem even dangerous she seems like i don't know like pesky like annoying see i like in the uh, way like she suggests things to macbeth but like macbeth the way that denzel plays macbeth which i fucking love is that she's making a suggestion and then he's wrestling with the suggestion and then he makes his own decision and i think that's like joel cohen's if this is if this is a masterpiece and again i'm not going to say that it is but if it is it's because he's positioned the uh Macbeth's line readings as the perfect articulation of an uh, a spoken inner monologue and denzel does such amazing work translating that into 
what we've said, like a character that like that like is not content, but like resigned to a certain place and station his in his you know universe in his life, in his kingdom, and then is for other for reasons beyond his control is 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 uh, 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 given the opportunity to make a certain amount of certain choices that would lead him to a certain outcome. Um, but that making those choices leads to uh, uh, precipitous decline in like uh, cognitive function is is completely and totally fascinating. Um, even like in the the movie that like from this year that because we were just talking about it that I kept thinking of is um, the father, where the father the more I think about it seems like a seems like a cheap seems like a cheap thrill to me in the sense that like he goes mean when he goes when his dementia kicks and he goes mean you know what i mean and he, it's like it's almost like a sensationalized dementia you said dementia before with Macbeth. this seems less sensationalized no absolutely. this seems like a lived in like collapse of 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 not just his mind but everything that he knew to be true about the world like has simultaneously collapsed in on itself and and like he's just kind of struggling to kind of keep it keep it all together, and he'll use force if he has to because he's still like a forceful guy, um, and he'll use you know uh, you know his his intellect because he's still a smart guy, but he's not as he's 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 collapsed in on himself. And this this movie, and I think it's more because of Denzel than anything else, collapses in on. The, this Macbeth collapses in on himself better than anything I've ever seen. Yeah, and I what I find interesting, and uh, there's almost a controversial opinion I'd have with this film that I think it would almost work better, is yep. I think McDormand works a lot when she's representing like the id and ego of this kind of like couple. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, like Macbeth is presented as like the super ego sort of thing of mm-hmm. like looking at the world as it is, happy, kind of happy, but resigned with where he is. Mm-hmm. Like, not unless he seems happy. Yeah. Even the witch just says he seems like oh, Fucking goofballs, whatever. Yeah. You know, and like the thing that happens, he's like, no, oh, but still kind of like interested. And McDormand kind of, because re- there's, there, you know, Lady Macbeth and Macbeth are, are in the play the, the same, one and the same. They are mm-hmm. representations of one identity. Um, what I uh, my and I think it works when McDormand's playing off of that, like when McDormand's work when when Denzel and them are together and working off of that until when she dies, and then we get kind of like this explosion of Denzel of of self assurance and narcissism, and leading to the point where he's going to kill McDuff, and it's only his being distracted by the crown that kills him. Mm-hmm. Like he's going to like he handles Seward. With indifference, you get the sense he's going to do the same thing. Duh. But you get the, you get the like the indifference but, is that he the, and this is where I think I have a lot of affection for this Denzel performance in that like it you believe fully that he knows he's not going to die. Yeah, and absolutely. that's like that is something that I haven't seen in any of the Macbeth. Like there's no taking like, back. He's just, he's just like no, the fucking witches are. You wrong. believe it. Be, you as a viewer, you believe it fully that he knows in that Seward fight that he is gonna fucking live. Yeah, and so nothing matters to him. Like I mean, at if this all, movie, he sells it so perfectly. If this movie had had Macbeth kill Macduff, I would have been like, yeah, fine. Because I don't. But the, the the controversial opinion I have here is, yeah, I would take out the out damn spot monologue. I think I think 
Oh. There is nothing in this film. Uh, McDormand's performance of that is fine compared to like every other version of it I've seen. Except for Thorn and Blood. Um, yeah, of course. <laughs> but um, what I'm trying to say is there is no mm-hmm. sense that there is. And, and it's I always, it's always never worked. Yep. Like the, the transition of Lady Macbeth in the play. Because like Shakespeare is great, but like not perfect. Like it, that transition never worked. And I think it works really well here too. What works here is the fact that like when Lady Macbeth's standing on the steps and Ross looks up at her, you kind of go like, did Ross fucking kill her? Yep. I thought the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And like you take the out damn spot scene and like that fully says, yeah, Ross killed her. And then you get kind of the narcissist. Then that's what her death ends up creating like that narcissistic, overwhelmed um, Macbeth, who is eventually defeated. But here's the thing with but, that And I scene. think that's the only thing that doesn't work about that, that sequence. Like, I love the physician and uh, the, the the handmaiden talking. Like, I think those two are well, really working well. So, yeah. But I just feel as though, like, it's a problem with the play. And I'll fucking say it. Come at me, dicks. <laughs> that out damn spot, uh, soliloquy, yeah, it's a soliloquy. Yeah. It's the worst fucking thing my problem in the history of Shakespeare's dramas. My problem with, like, the, the nurse and the doctor scene is that it needs, especially in the way that it's framed in this movie, is that the out damn spot like soliloquy needs that explanation like that they're they're almost kind of like narrating or like a uh like a sporting event kind of like you know um doing a a a commentary on like what's happening in the scene because there's just not much there so the ross maybe killing her thing adds some depth to it him walking down the stairs which i thought when he's doing the tomorrow um uh, or tomorrow, tomorrow is is fascinating in the sense that like Roman Polanski also has Macbeth walking downstairs when he's delivering those lines, and I was wondering if that's like part of the like I, again I don't know like I wonder if that's part of the like the myth of of Shakespeare do like does Macbeth always walk downstairs when he's delivering those lines or is he not I imagine that most a lot of productions don't have stairs, but whatever doesn't matter. It seems like in Denzel's line reading he's judging her. Yeah, no, absolutely. She he is goes through idiot. it. He goes through it so quickly. And he's looking at her the whole time. She's laying on the ground at the bottom of the stairs, and he's walking down the stairs, and it seems like his speech is not directed at, like, the gods or nature or fate. Life in general, yeah. It's directed at his wife. Like, she didn't have the fortitude to press on with, like, what needed to be done. And the, but the beauty of the performance is that I'm not sure that he believes he has that fortitude either. But it's the dice have been cast, and this is what he's come up with, and he's going to see he's it, gonna see it through yeah. like all the way what, to the end, regardless that, of what happens. What I love about the speech too is like usually, you know, somebody will uh, a Macbeth performer will will like drag that out. He fucking like just gets through it. Yeah. He's like, uh, I'm gonna say this. Fuck you, and now moving on. But his face, Mario, his face is just kind of like, he's got that pulled back, he does, he's doing that, like a little bit of that pulled back bottom lip thing that he does. Um, and this is, I mean, again, and this is where we've talked about... We King talk, Kong ain't got shit on me sort of thing, yeah. Mario, right after the Wayface scene when he asks for his... There's two scenes, right after the Wayface scene when he asks for his armor, and then like after... He sees after the the leaves blow in, and he goes back to his throne which before is, he which, fights the scene. Which is amazing, the amazing way to show that the um, Dunham, Dunham, 
the the woods are yeah. coming. Is um Tuntinane. Is he's and so this is actually it's actually it's fair. The screen this is like a good like um uh conversation in a way because I think there is a little bit of the King Kong ain't got shit on me stuff. There's a little bit of the training day Denzel thing that exists inside of Macbeth, and they're not crossing over, you know what I mean? This isn't like that. Could you imagine thing. if Ethan Hawke had popped up? That would have been great. Has Hamlet? Yeah. <laughs> um, that would have been fantastic. Um, but in color? It would have been a different movie. He's like in color? Yeah, and he's like, uh, uh, and they acknowledge like that one's in black and one's in, one's in color. Um, there's a little bit of that here, but it's, 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 I don't know, it's... it's Julia Stiles pops up from 10 Things I Need About You. It's sold so... Oh, I thought you were going to say... No, I won't say. It's sold so differently. It has such a different connotation. It has such a different context. Yeah. Um, but it's... It literally is... And that's where, like, you were talking about fable. The idea of a myth. The idea of an allegory. The idea of... You know, the tra- the idea of a tragedy. We've kind of moved beyond the ideas of tragedies as uh, as a culture. You know what I mean? But Because tragedy almost seems kind of like above all narrative it's 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 something else it almost seems biblical in its in its nature um he brings he elevates that attitude that he had in like something like training day to like another level and this is what i was going to say before we got kind of uh, digressed we talked a little bit about we didn't talk about it on the air because fences was the year before we started the podcast um we both I think we both liked Fences. Yeah, I love Viola Davis. Was, I, Viola Davis I, mean, I, did, I just like the fact that she won Best Supporting Actress. Instead of Best Actress, yeah. She was an actress. Um, I liked two-thirds of his Fences performance until he started Denzeling, mm-hmm. And then the character was lost, and then we just got Denzel. He is able to Denzel here in character, and it adds so much depth to this character. There's a, Because of the age that you brought up earlier, there is a... Very um, clear, I think, Lear, like, um, not aesthetic, like emotional aesthetic to this character. And a, but also a pettiness. Right. Because he's, but it's the pettiness is, he doesn't, he like believes it because he's told he has to believe it. The, no, but I, well, I meant like with the Banco stuff and all no, that. No, no, but the, the, but the beauty of it, I think, is that like the witches tell him something and because he's not thinking about it. He just believes them. They are above everything that he's ever known about anything. And so he's just like, okay, fine. But it doesn't ever seem to not hurt a little bit. You know what I mean? Like the way that he touches Fleance's head, like before he kind of like sends his murderers off to find them and kill them. There's like a pang there. There's like an emotional something like attached to that motion and that like, you know, the, 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 his tone um that it's he's living it's almost like he's living two he's living inside of two different worlds and he's acting on he's acting on one although he knows that the other one is still exists you know what i mean um he's purposely ignoring it and that it just it's i don't know it's just i mean he's it's it's not what i expected from him in this i expected him to go fucking crazy and he didn't. For most of the movie, he doesn't. For most of the movie, it's very internal. Like, even the stuff that he's speaking out loud is um, very internalized feelings about stuff. And, obviously, it's supposed to be. But he seems to find a way to, to like, 
to put them more inside than like I think like the traditional actor of Macbeth does. Um, but again, I don't like I don't. So here's the question I want to ask you. Um, like the the aesthetic. What does the aesthetic do for you? Because it didn't do anything so are for we, me. Are we moving on to like the set design technical? I think so, right? Yeah. I mean, do you have? I mean, if you want to say, no, I mean, no. obviously, if you want to say anything else, feel free to no, say I, whatever I you want. No, I think this is good to like look at this film in two different ways, in the sense of the narrative form and performances, and then obviously the technical aspects. Of yeah, because you said like there's a movie that's going to be popping up a lot of your technical awards and. Now there's a movie that's gonna be popping up a lot of my technical awards. So, but like, what, um, but 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 just the point is is like from the McDormand standpoint, like I think she works extremely well when she's interacting with him, and I think it's it's harmed by that that soliloquy of hers because I think it is in stark contrast to that because I think she's not being a pest. I think she's working as part of his. Part of their subconscious, because I I see Macbeth. I've always seen Macbeth and Lady Macbeth not as two separate characters, but sure. as two sides of the same coin. But I don't. And I is think that, is that here? Do you think that's here too? Because I agree with. I you. do think it's here oh, okay. until the out damn spot, and hmm. I'm like, why is this? I, I think she she nails what's supposed to be done. See, but I feel like she's. I feel like she does. I but feel I like feel, she's she nails billboarding like a lot of these line readings, like that she's like a modern. I feel like there's, she's, there's too, she's like, playing it too modern, isn't she? No, there's not like a. A little bit, but like, Lady Macbeth demands like a modern control in the sense of like, it's a modern character of how much she speaks for her husband in the original play. But there's a little bit. Sorry, I'm sorry. I don't get a sense. There's not like a raw. There's not like a rawness to it that like she kind of loves to do. A rawness or kind of like modern naturalism. There's still like a really level of control and intent behind mm. it that you don't see from Francis McDormand. Francis McDormand is, is typically just this like raw off kilter sort of performance. Well there's a little bit and of here, fuck a, you here. Where I which I'm Yeah, not, no, like, there is absolutely a I'm fuck not, you. But that's but because I, I think that is there's resignation versus fuck you. Mm. And I think that's what this is. Like the Macbeth identity is is these two conflated sides of like, yeah, this is my station in life. I guess I gotta be happy with it. I'm like, fuck you. I'm like the best fighter ever, best warrior. I should be king. What are you doing? Your fucking son's a goddamn fucking little dillweed. But does she know that? And when she first reads that no, letter. No, it's because, no, the reason I, but yeah, she does because I do see them as the same person. Mm. Yeah, you understand what I'm saying? Like, that, I do that's, know what that's you're always saying. been my reading of it. I do know what you're saying, and I think your reading of it is, I think it, it's, it's, um, it's, it's tying together a little bit of uh, some loose, like uh, emotional loose ends that I had um, regarding like the uh, McDormand performance. Um, but it does stand but in I contrast to Out Damn Spot, because I would see that more coming from Denzel than I would from... You know, from well, her. But it's like it's like that scene. But it's almost. But it's almost maybe like it's like it's like I almost need like a transition of his resignation to her that you don't see. But it's, and that's a problem with the play. It's the it's the it's the pre knife scene for me. That's that right, kind of Shakespeare. Does me come in. back, come yeah. back to life. I'll fuck you up. I'll show you a phone. You'll be shocked. And I'll kick you in the nuts. No, Shakespeare would jump right on Reddit and he would own it. Like he would jump right on Reddit and be like, "Red pill." Like, <laughs> oh no, Shakespeare, why? <laughs> Make Shakespeare great again. Um, R the Donald. 
January 6th was not that bad. Shakespeare would 100% um, be an insurrectionist when he... Oh, oh my god, he was... Absolutely. Yeah, totally. Um, there, yeah, there's a couple of scenes where they're playing off of each other. S. Craig Zoller's a leftist. Where F. Craig, but S. Craig Zoller is a leftist. <laughs> no, but I, I'm just saying with the popular culture. Said, yeah. Right, yeah. Brady Stanellis has a little... <laughs> Wussy bitch. But it's a, you know, I'm making it. You jokes. can't say things like that because it makes me want to have conversations <laughs> about it. My point is that like there's a couple of moments where they're playing off of each other where it seems like Frances McDormand is doing, she's pulling Frances McDormand punches, and they're like the, the shoulders are up and like the faces. Is positioned and the eyes are the eyes are like steely. But if she's representing that, it demands it. But I don't. I'm not 100 sure that this. The way that Denzel is playing it, there's less nuance to her performance than there is to his. Absolutely, because I think, but but I think that's that's on purpose. But I don't because think he eventually shows that in the end. See, but here's what I would say: is that I think when he I'll, just flicks the blood in Seward's face and then stabs oh, him in the goddamn neck, that beautiful. is that is him McDormanding. But it's McDormanding with depth, and what I'm saying because is that there's, there's two characters. No, 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 no it's, it's not two, about the two characters. It's that you can have. You can. She can still be that. She can be that side, but have an under, an underneath, a a, a present undercurrent of other emotions. But the other thing, what I'm saying is that I don't think she. So he has the resignation, but he also has a present undercurrent of everything else that he's ever experienced in his whole life seems to be kind of at, at available and at play when he's doing scenes. That's fair. When she's doing scenes, I don't get the impression that there is anything else other than the reading of the lines. And let's even just, I'll actually defer to you, because I like it, of the she's playing that side of that one personality. I still think that she would be, if even if she's playing that one side of this, that personality, I still think that she would be, a depth of character would be present. And what I'm saying is that the way that she plays, the way that she reads some of these lines, I don't perceive a, perceive a depth of character. I perceive an attitude. And that's and that's kind of what I'm pushing up against. Is but that I just I would, don't want the attitude. I would I would agree with that for a lot of these sequences. But then the the scene where she still he brings out the knives and she has like this abject terror on her sure. face. Yeah, I think shows. Oh, there's she, there's moments where she shows it. She's still good. But I, I think I think she has to be. I think that character and that performance and and you know this is coming from the person who like fucking hated McDormand in Nomadland. Yeah, like demands much more force and much more lot lack of nuance but i still I, I think it's there but this is an interesting discussion because you hated nomadland and i am fine with nomadland and i fucking love her in three billboards and you feel what about three billboards i think she's fine right but i think she's i think she's the worst part of it so exactly so we're like we're coming at this from like weirdly mirrored Angles I mean, and it's also it's like also an issue. Thing. It's also like a prejudice I have where I don't like those kind of people, and I just don't want to watch those kind of people. Oh, uh, three billboards. Like, no, I don't want to watch what has become her shtick almost of like. Right. Just well, that's what I was kind of raw Republican-ish but, women. But well, but she's like the opposite of that. But, but no, yeah, what I mean, yeah, is, you know I know what, what you mean. mean. But I think the problem that I'm running into, Mario, is that I ex- so I wasn't sure what I was. I expected. Denzel to bring one thing, and maybe this is on me. I and we'll go well, right. He's a, well, he's a classically trained Shakespeare. <laughs> I expected Denzel to bring one thing, and he brought another. I I was hoping that Frances McDormand would bring one thing, and she brought the thing that I was hoping she wouldn't, mm. which is a kind of continuation of like um, the Frances McDormand persona, 
like, but in a Shakespearean context. And I didn't, I, I again, so maybe it's just like a personal thing. I didn't want it and I got oh, no, some I of think, it. And I'm just like a little bit like, I think, eh, I, 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 you could have done a little more. I mean, I wonder, the, uh, I obviously, like having loved this play, go into expectations of, or not expectations, but things I always want to see happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like this movie kind of nails that. that. Yeah. So like obviously like I'm gonna I guess fall to the side of that. I don't know if like you didn't have expectations of it because you're no, not necessarily I, I, I'm, I'm, Macbeth guy. I'm not a Macbeth kind of. I'm even I'm, like I've got a bunch of Coen Brothers movies on my list, but I wouldn't even say that I'm a Coen fair, guy. Really quickly though, aside, this is definitely a movie in the future podcast world we will we would actually have an episode about because it looks like we care about it <laughs> oh yeah we would have always had this yeah, one yeah any any coen brothers movies that's not like some you know uh lady killers or hail caesar or whatever like buster scruggs i wouldn't have wanted to do an episode on this Nah, we did we did a buster scruggs yeah I just, a, I just right? didn't care. and i think we didn't i think that's how we felt like i felt the harry melly Liam neeson movie was the best part of the movie i love the tom waits part too um and Tom Waits' part was good. And then everything else I could take or leave. Because why did I, see, why did I just see Tom Waits in? The Chris Pizza. Right. Um, cool. All right, so we kind of, we were going to do this, I think, 10 minutes ago, 15 minutes ago, then we got sidetracked yeah. again. This is but, going to be a short episode. <laughs> well, no, you texted me and you're just like, because we had the extra day, this is going to be 20 minutes longer than it was yeah. going to be. Um, so let's transition into the technical side of it because I... I don't know. I was left a little cold by a lot of the aesthetic choices here. Um, because I'm, I'm not 100% sure I understood why any of it was... I mean, some of it is spectacular, but I'm still not 100% sure why it's done the way it's done. I'm curious, do you have a feeling as to like why he made... Do you know? Do you, do you do any reading on this? Do you know why Joel Cohen made this movie? Was why it just made kind the of, movie? Yeah, I- was it just kind of like a pet project or... I, I didn't look into why he did it, but I looked into, like, the the work that was made into, like, the construction mm-hmm. of certain sequences or the construction into, like, why yeah, things yeah, looked yeah. a certain way. Um, a lot of it's based off, like I said, mentioned earlier, like, the set design of Edgar Cord, uh, Gordon Craig. And if you can, like, look oh, at okay. this. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, this is... I'm showing Tom right now some of the images. If we used to have an Instagram, this would be something we'd you put on post a couple of pictures on Twitter. Um... Like this, these sequences alone mm-hmm. just look directly out of it. Um, and so I, I, I find aesthetically and from a technical standpoint, this film just to be a fucking marvel. Mm. Um, because it does feel as though there's there's a real intentionality to a lot of things going on. Um, the sequence, and I can't remember what scene it is, but where he's talking about the dagger there. Yeah. Um, you see the image in the door of the dagger, but the arches. There are ten arches, which are the which are the fingers oh. of a hand. So coming. there's the sh- the shadow or the yeah, light. So the lights that are yeah. coming through. Okay, interesting. I, I stopped the scene and was like, because I looked at it, I was like those look like fingers, and I stopped and I was I stopped the scene and like once again, one of the greatest things I think that's going to happen. I think in terms of film with this transition to like digital media. He shot and, this digitally, right? Yeah, it's it's okay. all like it okay. really highly uses HDR. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's like this is this and Dune are like the two most gorgeous movies in 4K. Dune is the, the worst. Um, Dune's great, but spoilers for two weeks from now for a lot of my technical awards. 
I counted the things because they looked like fingers. And I was yeah. like, there's not 10. I was like, one, two, three, four. And it was 10. Mm-hmm. Like mm. the, ten, the, the hand. Um, but I thought that scene was beautiful. The idea that the, the dagger is like the door handle, I thought was a good solution to a floating dagger. Absolutely. And, and that's the thing about this. Like, like there is a lot of aesthetic choices that are great solutions. The, mm. um, the sound design is amazing in the sense of we get that knocking constantly, uh, starting with the blood drip and the sound of the beat. Mm-hmm. And the beat and the knock. Like, constantly there's danger knocking at the door. It later comes in heavily with the knocking of the tree representing Duntonil Woods coming in. Um, here's my big issue. My biggest fucking issue with every fucking c- cock sucking, and it's for people who don't want to suck cock, because if you do, you want to. And that's cool, but like for shit sucking, shit sucking. Yeah, fucking cause... review of this goddamn fucking movie says, "Oh, this is looks like Bergman. It always looks like Bergman. It looks like Bergman. It looks I mean, like Bergman. No, a couple it does. of times. There's, there's a couple times where it does look like Bergman. But everyone's like the witch's scene where he has the she, she's got the drink looks like the summer seal, and it's like, no, you fucking idiots. It's Goya. Mm, yeah, like Goya did this witch's thing." The black like paintings. The, the black yeah. paintings. Like, well, an aspect of the black paintings. Like, there's a, a famous one, a witch, not a famous one, but like one of those is like witches in yeah. the air. Um, and a lot of it's inspired by a mixture of black paintings and like his experience. This man, like, Koi is my favorite artist. Um, Ditto. Is it really? Yeah. Have we talked about that? No. Gold Star. <laughs> they had a Goya thing of all of his war drawings at mm. Yale and I spent like an hour just looking at my them. pivotal like and it's something that I've written about in like almost everything I've ever written is going in uh 6th grade or 8th grade I don't remember we went to the Met where they had a retrospective and just like the it was just room after room after room of of Goya stuff and uh it blew my it took my breath away yeah, like I, I couldn't I, I was like alone in rooms with like etchings um it's and I've oh in like the novel that I've been working on like the giant is or the colossus is like plays a major major part in well, like my work. I mean I find him. I mean it's incredible. Saturn devouring his son is sure. is my second favorite painting of all time next to uh, Persistence of Memory. Mm-hmm. It's the Goya than Dolly. I love but, my Spanish-speaking artist. I can't help it. But the, uh, the I want black... I'm actually planning a trip to Madrid just to go to the Goya. Like I literally all I want to do is go yeah. to the Goya Museum. And the black because pa- they have all the black paintings. Right. And that shit is fantastic. And like I didn't did you ever see that movie? The the Bardem Natalie Portman movie? Oh, no, no, I didn't no, see it. I didn't see it. But anyhow, it was going to ruin so, it. So, which is in the air? Um I I think it's I can't is that part of the black paintings which isn't Well, there's a witch's was, painting in the black paintings that I Thought was a direct. So there's a direct reference. There's that one. I don't yeah. think it's. But witches in the air, which I don't know is a direct reference to the three witches. I don't think it is. But there's what I can only assume, and I've never looked it up. Is a um, I have the painting right here. Yeah, that's not a black painting, but but um, it has it has a figure like draped in a cloak, and everything like be- before that of the contortion of the body and the movement is Goya esque. It's not. Fucking Bergman-esque. And everyone just talks about how this movie looks Bergman-esque. And it's like there's so much else going on here. Well, there's uh, that crossroads sequence. 
like the crossroads with the old man, eventually with the, the killing of Fleance. Like there's so much going on there. There's Murnau, um Mm-hmm. With with uh, his Faust, like that looks directly lifted yeah. from Nose Faust, or you know the the smokiness of all those sequences that feel as though they're like on a set is a mixture of like a, a Tarkovsky and slash um, obviously a Kurosawa reference to the smokiness of Throne of Blood. But there's also a bunch of Fritz Lang like like German. Well, I would I would say like I would, that's ex- why I'd, go, I'd lean yeah. towards like Murnau, and but I think that's also leading more towards um, Gordon Craig. Stuff because like because of those lines, I think feels. But I think doing it in film, if you're going to show lines like that in film, it's going to mean gonna, something very specific. Yeah. So you have your you have all that the Fritz Lang shit. Like anytime yeah, you make no, a I, line, I at, anytime you make a line like that, and you have a shadow like that. You're just like, well, this is part of that. And I watched. Did you watch the making of this movie thing? No. So it's like a 13 minute documentary, and the fact like when it's on Apple, yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's an extra, okay. and he said like. Uh, the set designer, I can't remember his name, said like, yeah, he, he said like, I should do some black and white. And he's like, I'm going to get all, I'm going to paint everything in gray because you can see it. Mm-hmm. And so like that, like this is like the difference between like these movies that are made now. That's like, oh, I'm going to make a black and white version of it afterwards. Yeah. Like I think what's great about like 4K and HDR is you get the vibrant, strong lines. Mm-hmm. Of this, because you can paint everything in grays and blacks and whites, and I'm sure if they shot it in color, this would be one of the ugliest looking fucking movies ever. Well, it just wouldn't make any sense. Yeah, it would just look weird. It's like, yeah. why is this all gray? It would look plain. It would, and I guess that's an interesting point because it would look really plain. But if it's, it was in, but, if it was in yeah, color. But there's an intentionality, right. and nothing in this like there's the blending outside of um, the final scene where Fleance and. Uh, Ross are riding off together, and that's very clearly a CGI horse mm-hmm. coming into the foreground. There's a lot of CGI in this movie. I think it's it's one weird flaw is that there's but like I, some there's like a heavy leaning on CGI, and I don't think it's done perfectly. No, it's not done perfectly. But like that is the only time where I look at them like, Ugh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but that is just per- it, it. It it is a love letter for me to film and the set design, sound design, and this is. Near and peck, even though it's like typically just one thing. It's subtle. Yeah, it's not like this. Probably won't be like this. Won't be this will be on my sound category. It probably won't be my sound winner. Mm -hmm. Um, And typically, I don't like his stuff. This Carter Burwell score. It's the emotional beats. It doesn't. It's not transcendent, but it it is tonally doing things. That create the emotional essence of what a scene demands in case a person's lost. Yeah, I um, my problem with the score is not a problem with the score as much as it's because I didn't get the aesthetics and the reasons why he shot this movie in like the in like the way that he did. I was kind of like, I'm not sure what the score is adding. Like, I'm not sure what the score is doing to the scene. Because I'm not sure why this scene exists in the well, way so, that it exists. So the reason I, I mean, I don't, I didn't read. So there is a Oscars.com. I'll post it on Twitter because mm. I haven't read it all the way through. But I almost interpret this like when Edgar Gordon Craig did all these drawings. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, he was originally he was a, I think he was a son of an architect. He was classically trained to be an architect. Okay, but he had all these dreams of just these impressive sets, and eventually, like, thought like, oh, could I maybe do a black splash of what I want, and like project it on because mm. you know, it's the turn of the century. Yeah, this feels like a love letter to like what you could 
he could have done. Mm. Because, like, for me, those harshness and the aesthetics at times work. Like, that scene where she's burning the letter and you have the fake sure. stars Sure, I was just thinking it. of that, yeah. Or, like I said, spoilers, that scene is going to cross over on Which our one? pivotal list. Um, the um, oh, the double. Something with the something comes, yeah. Yeah, scene. Like, Whew. you could not do that. Obviously, turn of the century. You could, you can't do that now. There's, I don't understand. I, I, so the, well, you couldn't do that until like what, fifteen years ago. You couldn't do it until he did it. I think that's a, I think that's a beauty. But of I mean, like from a technical sure. standpoint, you couldn't have done it until right. Maybe the Romans could have done it because they would have just flooded a bunch of, you know, poor people beneath the Colosseum. They probably could have done it. Had Shakespeare been around, I love um, the Romans. <laughs> The Romans hated people and loved them so much. But, but, like, it, it is kind, like I said, like, the thing I love about this is it feels like, in every way, such a love letter. Museo del Prado. It's in the Museo del Prado, this painting, too. Gotta go. Gotta get there. Gotta get there. Gotta get my passport first. Um... Yeah, everything about this is such a love letter to people. This I don't know. And maybe I'm overstepping and reading into it because mm-hmm. it just did what I wanted. But I don't think I am because it does things that like people who are really in tune, especially with this play, have wanted or have speculated in the past and it did those things. Mm. But then to bring everything else in works. And it just it bums me out to read people like reading this and going like, this seems like a love letter to Bob Bourbon. So it's I, really hard to interpret what's going on. I would say it's definitely super easy to interpret what's going on. It's super hard to interpret why black and white, why the angles, why the CGI stuff, why like some of those aesthetic choices. And not, not because it's like super complicated, just because it's, you know, he could have done anything. Why this? I think to your point though, I think one of the things that this was fan honestly, like I will say this really quickly. While Scream was fan service that didn't work for me, mm. this is fan service that very much works. Here's for me. Ex- I, I, that was I think going to be that was going to be the point. I, that could be like the under the the uh, 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 if we use the title episodes, it'd be, this would be called fan service. Sure. <laughs> one of the things that I think we don't get a lot in Shakespeare adaptations is depth. And so one of the things that I did in my class that I just taught last semester was we looked at Midsummer Night's Dream and we looked at... If you're a high school graduate, you can uh, sign up for Sacred Heart. Yeah. Apply. Yeah. Um, you could have Tom Dolan as your professor. And, I, and I'll shove some shit down your throat. Um, some, some... But it won't cost you a lot of... And it'll cost you a ton money. of money, but it's not going to cost, cost you a lot you of a, effort. Well, I thought, I thought your uh, texts and all that were still pretty, pretty cheap. I don't have any. Te- I don't make anyone yeah. buy anything. What I mean is, from a text standpoint, he will not. Make no, I just text. want you to pay attention and like and, and, and really dig into what I'm offering you. And so, one of the things that I kind of pointed out in like the Midsummer Night's Dream thing that I did was that like there is a way to do the Shakespeare interpretation that is faithful to Shakespeare, Sha- faithful, faith, blah, 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 faithful to the text, but doesn't have any kind of emotional depth at all. See. The 1999 version of Midsummer Night's Dream. Is that the Brana? That's that's the no no. It's the oh, did he direct it? I don't think he did. He's it's in the it, Kevin Klein. Yeah, he's in it. Kevin Klein, Stanley Tucci, et al. Um, well, honestly, I'm gonna be honest. Never seen it. I, it's terrible. 
one, the reason I've never seen it is I. You asked me a question about a Shakespeare comedy. I don't know a goddamn thing. Yeah, I thought his comedies were abysmal because they're written for people from the 17th century, and I am in the 21st century. But it, so it's that's the thing. So it's terrible. The same thing I think could be said of Julie Taymor's version of Midsummer, I'm, and I'm just talking about this because I just did it and I just dug into a lot of this stuff. Michael Hoffman directed that one. Oh, okay. Julie Taymor's Midsummer Night's Dream is kind of the same. So she does interesting aesthetic things. She does some interesting casting, but it has no narrative value at all. Um, and I think that's the problem that we run into a lot with Shakespeare stuff. And this is like, I really liked Kenneth Branagh's four-hour adaptation of Hamlet, which wasn't an adaptation at all. It was just all of Hamlet on film. Um, what's, your, what's your opinion again of Titus by Tamor? I love it. Okay. But I love it aesthetically. Yeah. I don't give a fuck about the story. I just think it looks amazing. I also don't care about the story. No, no, I'm, but that's just like a me thing. Like no, no, the, no. the aesthetic of yeah, Titus Andronicus overwhelms oh, yeah. anything that could be. Ha- I mean, nothing that can be, nothing that sh- could be happening narratively would matter at all in that movie. Um, but I think the same thing is true of the, the same thing. I think is true of her Midsummer Night's Dream in the sense that like it just looks awesome, but it's just like why? And I'm a little bit, I I am a little bit here. Why? Aesthetically. But I think what this movie does that none of the other Shakespeare adaptations that I've seen in a long time do, aside maybe for like, maybe some of like the loose adaptations, like 10 Things I Hate About You, stuff like that. You know, you mentioned that earlier. Um, Stuff that kind of takes the themes of Shakespeare and then like, in like the general concept of of the thing and, and turns it into another thing. This movie takes the Shakespeare and it leaves the Shakespeare, but it adds an emotional depth that I don't think is present in even like the Olivier Shakespeare stuff. You know what I mean? The Olivier Shakespeare stuff seems also it's so so rigid and tied to like the stage, the thing, you and know, the stage, and, right? But also like the oh, it's Shakespeare. Like we have to do it like this, and I lack it lacks the emotional resonance that like. The stuff that Denzel is doing in here, the what's, stuff that Ross is doing here, the stuff that Corey Hawkins as Macduff is like a revelation. I mean, he's probably not going to make my list, but he's a revelation in this. Well, the thing the thing I really enjoy about this is it doesn't has it doesn't have this is honorific the right word? Yes, like this 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 idolation. Yep, of Shakespeare. It's just a story. Yep, and so that's why the witches works emotionally instead of just as a plot device. Yeah, you know what I mean. It's like, well, here's a here's a thing that's gonna hit you, not here. It's gonna hit you in your in your heart, heart not in your, in your head. Not, not, you're not right. gonna be like, oh, not this, just I, in your I, head. I care about this because it's Shakespeare. It's gonna hit you here because like the story because it's it's a great story. Like right. Shakespeare doesn't work if it's not good stories. Like that's why it works is that it's really excellent stories well, of what, ambition, right? And, that's and whatnot what, melted down to its purest form. And that's why my what I was saying in that class, like the, the thing we ended on, we ended on two things. We ended on the uh, Dead Poet Society. Um, She's the man. <laughs> the Dead Poet Society, uh, Robert Sean Leonard reading of like of the last Puck speech because it has all these like. What is that from? Oh, is that Dead from, Poet that's from Dead Poet Society? Okay. You've seen Dead Poet Society, right? Uh, when I was a little kid, I okay. didn't like it. 
Um, so I'll just, it's like it's you know it's like a it's it's like Cider House Rules. It's one well it's better it's way better than Cider House. No, Rules. but both those movies are like movies that people say like are you got a fan feel yeah, of yeah. '90s movies. But I'm just like no, I don't care. The Dead Post. So the, I've seen them both. The Midsummer Night Dream of the, the the Puck's final monologue reading in Dead Post Studies is relevant is great because it takes the it takes the words of the play and it uh, uh, filters them through the plot of the the film. They don't have anything to do with each other, like the film and the play in and of themselves. But it takes the words and it filters them through the plot, and then they have a, a deeper emo- They have a different emotional resonance than they do in the play. They mean something in the context of the film rather than in the context of the play. And then I settled on the Neil Gaiman um, from The Sandman, where like this is I feel like the ideal reading of it, where he takes the thing. And he leaves it as what it is. It's about fairies and humans. And he says, like, what if this is in reality a um, a way to remember fairies? And what is what is the cost of that remembering? What is the cost of, like, looking at this thing for what it is? What is the emotional cost of that? And I think this is where this movie succeeds, where I think most other Shakespeare adaptations fail and then it says, what is the emotional cost? Not just not just death. It's not just death. Throne of Blood, I think, is the other one. And Ran is the other one. So Kurosawa. What is the what is the emotional cost? Not just the psychological cost. What is the emotional cost of this kind of awareness of self? You know what I mean? Like when Denzel Washington, like we said he's resigned, he's a coward, he's like doesn't want to, he's not interested. What is the emotional cost of saying, all right, witches, I'll buy into that. And and that emotional cost is tied to the psychological cost, but it's pure, like from a storytelling standpoint, what you want is the emotion. The psychological thing is second. The emotion comes first because then you feel it in your, in your fucking body. Yeah. Um, that's what this movie does. But I, the aesthetics, the Denzel Washington of it, I think elevates this movie for me into like something that I enjoyed instead of something that I was just kind of like like marveled at or was confused but was ultimately confused by you know what I mean yeah to, to yeah I, I could understand that like for me I just think it was just working on every level and the aesthetic choices and bringing in all these different avenues work towards me to work it was aesthetically and technically it worked for me in the sense of a reassurance that Cohen knew the material and respected mm. the material and now focus on the narrative. So like I'm drawn in by the visuals. I'm drawn in by the fact of like, oh, I know what you're doing here and why you're doing it. Mm. Now I'm paying more attention to the narrative. And that's where, you know, I think when you get to that crossroads sequence with Ross and the old man, that's where like I really was ready to hone in on it. And that's yeah. where I was like, wait, there's things narratively being done here. Mm-hmm. And that's now where it kind of, the aesthetics of it led me to narratively focusing on the choices he made. Mm. I, I think otherwise, had he just kind of presented like kind of a regular view of it, a regular kind of flat, presentation of it or Polanski-esque Macbeth even though I love that film still right. um, I wouldn't have necessarily 
looked into the fact that Ross isn't the one to deliver Macduff's head or that there's certain line readings that are given to other characters or mm-hmm. certain things are being done kind of off kilter. Yeah. Um, and so it has a value here that yeah, it does, exactly. or things have a value here that it doesn't in like, let's just talk about the Polanski Macbeth or let's just refer to the Polanski Macbeth. Things have a value here that or certain characters have a value here that they don't have. In the yeah. And I, and I think the Polanski Macbeth is, is, is still not dis, dis, like unvalued by this because the Polanski Macbeth no. is, Showing the the rawness of the the Plancy Macbeth is focused on like the dirt and the grime of the 1300s, right? Whereas this is focused on the narrative. Like the Plancy Macbeth is a naturalistic interpretation of Macbeth. This is a narrative hierarchy. Can I say that I think the more that we talk about this, I think that Joel Cohen was probably operating more. From a, I think he read it and had a um, experience like you had, where he read it and he's like, I like this character. I like this character. And I've seen a bunch of adaptations and they don't do the thing that I want this character to do because I'm reading it and I'm seeing this character is playing this role and they're not, in this adaptation, they're not doing that. Like, so we talked about a corrective before. I don't want to say that like he's kind of like, going out of his way to say that like everyone that made a Shakespeare adaptation before him is doing it wrong. I'm saying that he kind of read it like you read it and was just like, you know what, Who, which character is awesome, which I think that people are kind of misinterpreting is Ross. Yeah. So I'm going to do this. And people and, and people have looked at it before. Like it's, it's a big through line through the Shakespeare narrative of. And this is where I Ross think it's a success. The third murderer. This is where I think it's a success. And then this is the thing. This movie is, this movie I think for me exists on two poles. Success it's a success and failure from a costume design standpoint in the sense that Ross has the one interesting costume in the whole movie. He has like this monk's cleric. But with like this, yeah. like, ta- like he has got like, it's like two pieces. It's like a robe. But it's like a cleric. Right, right, but it's a robe and then it's got this top piece that ends at his chest that has these like ribbon sleeves oh, that yeah, don't yeah. like go on his, and you're like, oh, why is that? And then at the end, it's gone. Like, it's not there at the end, and I, I kept, like, wondering why. And everyone else has this kind of crisscrossed leather armor thing going on. Um, yeah, no, it's a, it's, it's, an inter- it's a fascinating movie. Are you going to go see it in theaters, do you think? Probably not. Probably not. No. I mean, Your TV did a satisfactory job? Yeah, no. I think it looked amazing on... Aspect ratio. Any thoughts, oh. feelings, aspect ratio? No, I think it works. I just, yeah. I, I don't think it adds or detracts from anything. It just is a thing that's that's nice to look at. I like the round, the rounding mm-hmm. of the shot in the corners. Yep, was a, it's shot in four three. Yeah, probably. Um, yeah, but I don't think it necessarily adds or detracts from anything. It just is. For me, it just works to draw you into it initially. Well, I think the last aspect ratio, real aspect ratio conversation we had on this podcast was about the lighthouse. And yeah. I think that one served to immediately, like, claustrophobe you, to turn claustrophobia into a verb, into this, like, very specific frame. And, like, you were, st- like, immediately you were like, you are fucked. You are stuck here in 4 3 yeah. ratio and you're not getting out. And this one, I didn't feel that same pull but there's almost, definitely almost, moments where they were like people walking towards me where i'm just like i'm here like you yeah, are feel, here and feel, i'm here i feel it's used for those monologues or those soliloquies where like it it seem it would otherwise seem on film 
too artificial. Mm. Um, to have like the face come in on you if it's in four three, and a person walks into a shot and is there in your face, it's there. Also, I think maybe it's probably easy mm. in the sense that if it's filmed in a regular theatrical two point three wall, blah blah blah. blah. Yeah. Um, like they they have to account for too many things. Whereas if you keep it tight and locked in, it's easier to do, and it just uh, it's it's fine. The like, one it's, thought it I had on it was like it related to the artifice of stuff like not the castle per se, but like when they go to the woods, like everything's well, just the woods straight line so and fake. Yeah, the four three aspect ratio seems to kind of um, uh, support. The artifice of that more I, so than I, kind of like may, or even like the crossroads scenes. Like here's we've got a couple of sets here. We've got the woods. We've got the castle. We've got this area where some stuff. Happens. See, and that's and that's the one thing where I say this movie has a failing. Like of all the things, this is the one where I say it, it fails. Is the Duntonade Woods coming to the castle? It when it actually shows it, I'm like, oh my fucking god, this looks like Wes Anderson doing it did woods. look oh my god that's real i mean it looked very wes anderson it looked very like individual leaves well then like, and like all the cloth. trees are moving on yeah, yeah, yeah it seems like i should just watch jason schwartzman or owen wilson in the corner going like okay kids we're doing macbeth well that's but that's and that's the thing and, and joel cohen is definitely not going to this movie not like having seen throne of blood but like you can never replicate the sensation of seeing like what looks like the entire Japan countryside moving on this castle. Yeah. Like, you know, and Toshiro Mifun just kind of be like, fuck. Like, yeah, I'll shoot some arrows at this fucking moving country. Like, sure, that'll work. Um, but maybe that's why he did it the way he did it. Because he knew he couldn't, like, overwhelm yeah. and that's, the experience. And that's why... And that's why- when the revelation of the woods coming is, is so it's masterfully in, it's done. It's just in the one Because guy. it's just yeah. Macbeth opening the window and the leaves coming in. Yeah. And then immediately leads into the young Seward scene. Mm. That's where you realize there's throne rooms outside, which I also thought, thought was great. Well, well I love the I love that, that entire like final sequence. It's great. It's just like from the young Seward fight immediately to the Macduff fight. It's just so brilliant. It's very good. It's an interesting movie. It's very interesting. It didn't always work for me, but I, I found it... I, the entire time, I found it very interesting. Um, I'm curious to know. I mean, I, it would make me sad if he was like, you know what I'm going to do next? Othello. Huh? No. I, huh? Think, I think he'll do... I've got feeling he'll just do a Western next. <laughs> he'll go back to a Western. <laughs> he'll adapt a Cormac McCarthy book again. Some weird one. He'll do The Counselor again. That's that's right for you. No, Ridley Scott should do the counselor again. Oh yeah, no God no. I'd like to see him try his hand at Child of God. <laughs> I would love to see no, but the idea that well, I'd like to see like no seriously though like Cohen yeah. Brett like because there's already a Child of God movie that exists and I will never fucking watch oh, it. Oh, who made that? Who do you think? Who made who made that? James movie? Franco. <laughs> you knew that? Yeah, of course I okay, knew it. Yeah. Um, but I'd like to see like that's that's an eminently filmable McCarthy. No, I want no. We have to. He's got to do the Blood Meridian. No, it is. Daniel Day Lewis has got to come out you know, of retirement to play the judge. No, you know he needs to do Sutra. Right. Well, you know why? Because nothing happens. It, but like literally, just a straight eight-hour at ten the what sixteen-hour adaptation of Sutra. It's just Sutra. I fucking probably love that though. You you would you love Sutra? I just like sit there for sixteen pages long. I'd be sitting there for sixteen hours just going like, it's good. Yep. 
Pretty good. You did a good job. If you'd like to tweet us about... Is that you or is that me? It wouldn't have been me. Not me. Well, whatever. Doesn't affect uh, anything. Um, if you'd like to tweet us about what computer it was, you could tweet us <laughs> at Film Pivotal. Or you can send us an email at pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can look at a list of our beers that we used to do and a list of the movies we used to do at pivotalfilm, uh, pivotalfilm.com. Not pivotal.film because then you're looking at a cinematography thing from Ireland. Oh, is, you, that, is if, that true? I think so. It used oh, to be. Okay. If you want to do that, that's cool. The, their shots look cool. They have a lot of drone things. Mm. We don't have it. We don't own, own a single drone. The Pivotal Film Towers are too far up. The wind would carry them away. That's true. In two weeks, guys, we will be moving into the auditorium. We will I'm be dusting excited. off the chairs because we're going to have 28,000 people in attendance. It's a very big it's Bad, weird. Deal. 110 stories up in the air, and we have a 28, and like each floor is very, very small. Well, most people. But we have a 28,000 person auditorium, single floor, by the yeah. way. Terrible seating if you're in the back. Can't see a goddamn thing. But our charisma carries all the way to the back. It's an intense experience. Yeah, my dick also carries to the back. Yes. All two and a half inches, ladies. Uh, After all that Shakespeare, we have talk, you know, I have to I have to load. I'll say this on I'll say this on camera, and then we can talk we about it more we're off not, camera. We're on I'm, camera. God damn! Someone's filming us. <laughs> the drones. There's no drones this far up. Last year, Mario, we took this process took so long that we divided it into two episodes. Let's try not to do that this year. Oh no, I, I can do it. Okay, me. I think I can too, but I think we always like that. We're gonna and then we we're gonna we devil it early on and then for the last half I will not we devil it. Mario, we did two movies. It took two. We hours are two and... hours and nine minutes. Oh yeah, that makes sense. I mean, we, that's, I mean, I whatever. think we refinished with Scream in like forty minutes, right? Scream was twenty-five minutes. When did we finish it? Forty-nine minutes ago. Yeah. Well, no. We started this one at forty nine fifteen. Yeah, we we talked. I'm not surprised we talked about this movie for an hour and ten minutes. No, I'm not either. But what I'm saying is that I think our discuss our discussion of the end of the year list always goes long. Can we try to keep it at two hours this year? Uh, let's go for two thirty. Two thirty. Yeah, I will bet twenty dollars we can get under two thirty. Oh, obviously we can do it, but can we do it? We can do it. Oh, speaking of, I am cutting out uh, two categories. You're cutting mine. out two categories? I will not have a best foreign film, and I will not have a best animated film this year. Because I have decided those narratively follow movies. If they're, I will still have a best documentary, because a documentary narratively is different. Yeah. A foreign film and an animated film narratively follow the same structure of any other film. Why should they be different? All right. So I'll do... You could still have them. Here. No, no. I'm, I'll do it right now. I've got a pen. Where's my pen? I had a pen. Where is oh, it? Oh, I might have moved it some days ago. <laughs> no, I had a pen like a second ago. Oh. Then I my... So foreign film, I think, is fair because we will talk <laughs> about... Do you really want to... You just do it right now. <laughs> no, no. Because I think for... Oh, there it is. Because foreign film is... Um, 
Because foreign film, the last couple of years for me, if I had a, I've had my top foreign film has been in my top ten list. Like, um, yeah, my top foreign film was in my top one last year. Right. Um, so Vitalina Varela was my, I think, number four or five or six last year. But it was my number one foreign film. Um, I will just say my top three, which is not going to change animated films this year, were Ryan the Last Dragon... Flea and Mitchell's versus Machines. Mitchell's versus Machines number one. No, Mitchell's versus Machines number three. Yeah. Raya is number one because I think Raya is completely beautiful, is narratively fun, um, but also emotionally, like, is doing things emotionally that most Disney films, most animated films, aren't going to go there. Flea, I think, is a very flawed, is a is a flawed movie. I can I can do my top three right now off the top of my head. Animated? Yep. Okay. I'll do it. Uh, and and obviously, um, these movies might pop up in my top ten. They don't. Spoilers. Why would you like spoiler like? Because say I don't. Anything I just, and then spoil it a minute later. Because <laughs> I'm just it's a joke. <laughs> um, yeah, my top three animated films. My number three is up. Not up. Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> my number. My number three is is is. <laughs> It's a movie that came out 11 years ago. <laughs> My number three is Luca. Okay. Um, it's minor Pixar, but it worked for me. Yeah, and it yeah. was an entertaining time. I didn't see Flea. Um, I will hope to catch that, so mm-hmm. maybe this will change. If it does, I'll talk about that. My number two is Raya vs. Last Dragon. It's a gorgeous movie. It's narrative structure in terms of Raya's conflict works. I feel as though the thing that is a failing is ultimately the conflict between its villain and Raya. I, that's where I think things fall apart. I think so too, but there's a there's an emotional despondency at the end of the movie that no other animated movie, even fucking Toy Story 3, has not even tried to touch. Which is like, we're all dead I think the movie should have ended there. Deal with that for a minute. But I think that it, I would sure. have loved it if it just ended. Absolutely. Uh, my number one's Mitchell versus the Machines. You didn't it's, like that when it came out. I didn't, but I've I've come around to it um, just because it's the one that has the most fun. Yeah, it's and, it's, it's, and it's that's the reason why I like it. Right. It has an energy. The voice cast is great. Outside of, um, I don't particularly care for the guy who did the show on Adult Swim. Who plays the tech mogul? Oh, uh, Eric Andre. Eric Andre. I yeah. don't particularly like him yeah. in it, um, but everyone else is is carrying their weight, um, and well, I just have I have fun I have fun with that. It's it's just a light, entertaining sort of animated. Can film. I say the problem with Flea is directly related to that comment, which is that Mitchell's Bridge Machines knows what it is aesthetically. Flea, unlike. Waltz with Bashir, which is its direct comparison, I think. But yeah, I would assume, like, that's yeah. why I was wondering if Flea could, like, pop up there. Flea is, it doesn't, but then be- it doesn't know why it's animated. Is it a documentary? Has oh, it yeah, oh, yeah. But it doesn't know why it's animated. Whereas Waltz with Bashir has a very clear reason to be animated. Flea does not. And an aesthetic choice is the way it is. It is. Well, it's because it's, it's the animated has, is rooted in memory it's rooted in avoidance it's uh rooted in uh like i mentioned the word artifice before talking about macbeth it's rooted in constructing an artifice around a, a trauma had you seen wolf from last year before it was on my list no uh yeah i'd seen like i'd seen like parts of it but okay. i hadn't seen like i haven't sat with it that's but it, i think that's why i ended up on my top 20 of like the last 20 years because like when i 
finally sat down and watched it, I was like, well, no other movie grapples with, like, war, like, in the last 20 years, like, Walt's well, supposed to be sure has. This movie's doing something different. It has, it's grappling with different things, but it doesn't know why it's animated. It It's very powerful. It's emotional. It's moving. It's why it's my number two. But it's that kind of, like, the choice to animate it. It's is, got that it's, it's Linklater like, problem? It's not wrestling. Yeah, yeah. Well... Um, it's got a Scanner Darkly problem as opposed to a Waking Life problem. Because Waking Life is very obvious why it's animated. Scanner Darkly is animated because Waking Life got a lot of press. Got it. You know what I mean? And this, I think, is animated because Waltz with Bashir I just realized I influenced. saw Scanner Darkly in theaters. Of course you did. I just remember that now. Mario, we saw everything in theaters back in the day. Yeah, that's true. Um, why did I see that in theaters? But I that's our animated movies. But I'm, that's fine. Yeah, no, if you still have a foreign film category, that's fine with me. I just, I've decided, I still will have a documentary category. Um, and we'll still do, we're only doing we sound talk, and we all that. Talk we'll talk about it out there. But yeah, join us in two weeks when we do what is my favorite episode of the year. Mine too. The best of 2021. I still don't know what number one's going to be. I mean, I know what number one's going to be. I know. I know, I, I know your number one. <laughs> I'm happy that you don't know your number one, though. No, that's what makes me excited. Yeah, yeah, is the yeah. fact that like there's still a couple movies I'm grappling with. But I will say, my number one is now not winning everything. Hmm. It was winning all the things, and it's because it's like a little spoiler. I'll give I'll give a small spoiler. A movie we talked about today is in my top ten. I kind of figured. <laughs> that's not a spoiler. <laughs> If you didn't have it in your top ten, people would be like, what the fuck? <laughs> but that's a, that's the only spoiler I will give. And that movie is Dune. Wait, no, wait, it's, Dune no, it's, Dune. A, it's a She's the Man. Drink beers, see movies, and talk to you next week. <laughs> <laughs>